Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk, black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit WorldAfropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. WorldAfropedia.com. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Friday, February 12th, 2016. So I have been told we are on the home stretch. Edward Baptist, the half, has never been told. Uh, we are in Chapter 8. Chapter 8, The Blood. Uh, we are almost at the end of the chapter. Uh, this is getting us pretty close uh, to the beginning of the Civil War. White people grappling amongst themselves uh, about how they are going to manage the Negras. Uh, with that, we will go ahead and get started, try and cover as much material as possible. Context of white supremacy. Again, Mr. Edward Baptist, the half has never been told. Audio segment number one. Now the administration was in the hands of James K. Polk. As a product of the Jackson Van Buren machine, Polk remembered Calhoun as a troublesome character and left him out of the new cabinet. But the new president still constructed an expansion policy almost identical to what anyone dedicated to the expansion of slavery would have implemented. He quickly compromised with London on the northwestern border, agreeing to split the Oregon country more or less equally along the 49th parallel to the Pacific. Although many Southern Democrats celebrated the deal, the 54 degrees, 40 minutes, or fight Northern Democrats thought they had been promised something else. Is it treachery? Is it bad faith? Wrote one to another. At the same time, Polk pushed aggressively on the southwestern border for expansion beyond Texas. Mexico was weak, and Texas was only the first of its distant provinces to be lopped off. The vast region of Alta California stretching from the north end of the Baja California Peninsula to an incompletely determined line somewhere north of the Bay of San Francisco, was almost as hard to govern, and already American settlers were infiltrating. Polk also had designs on disputed territory west of Texas's traditional border on the Nueces River. In the early autumn of 1845, he sent Louisiana politician John Slidell to Mexico City with an offer. Give us the disputed territory and sell us New Mexico and California for a total of $28 million. 
He also sent General Zachary Taylor and his troops across the Nueces into territory claimed by Mexico on the east bank of the Rio Grande. They spent the winter with their guns pointed across the river at Matamoros. In May 1846, news reached Washington that Mexico had rejected the Slidell offer three months earlier. Polk and his cabinet prepared a war message to be sent to Congress. But the message was superseded by the sudden arrival of news from Texas. U.S. and Mexican troops had fought a battle in the disputed territory. American blood has been shed on American soil, was the way Polk spun it to Congress. He asked for a war bill, not technically a declaration of war. He got it, despite vocal dissent from Joshua Giddings, John Quincy Adams, and other anti-slavery Whigs. To them, this war was proof that an expansionist slaveholding cabal was controlling U.S. policymaking. To much of the rest of the country, war promised fulfillment of the nationalist dream of placing the United States among the great expansive powers of the world, of massive new opportunities for settlement and land ownership, of the strange hunger for collective effort that sometimes reveals itself in the fevered early days of war. Northern Democrats forgot for the moment Polk's compromises on the Oregon line. Across the nation, men rushed to form volunteer military companies. This was the first chance in more than a generation to achieve military glory in the field against a regular European-style army. The war, eager patriots believed, would be the making of many kinds of fortune. Back on the first day of January, American troops had been digging in along the Rio Grande, 500 miles to the west of where old John Devereux, Julian Devereux's Virginia-bred father, had been starting another volume of his diary in Rusk County, Texas. The day opened year 1846 of the Christian era, noted the old gentleman from his desk at the family's new slave labor camp, but also year 1259 of the Hedra, or flight of Muhammad, from Mecca to Medina. John on the page still lived in the curious 18th century enlightenment, but John the old enslaver dwelled on the rough leading edge of the 19th century economy's commodity frontier. Between environment and advancing age, John's language had become less complex, his capitalization sporadic and syntax roughshod. Meanwhile, his son Julian, who like many of their old neighbors had run away from his debts, was preparing to mix up another brew of credit leverage from worldwide financial networks, heated and transformed by the fuel of labor productivity extracted from commodified people. John had fired the previous year's overseer. Although it was New Year's Day, all hands commenced grubbing under management of Negro Scott. They were clearing land steadily. On the second, he heard them in good spirits and happy singing and caroling at their work, except poor Henry, who will soon be emancipated from slavery by death. It's a cool, frosty morning, and the niggas go to work. Harriet Jones remembered the men singing on a similar Texas labor camp, with their hoes on their shoulders and without a bit of shirt. On they toiled, to prep as many acres of bare dirt as they could for cotton seeds. This effort became more high-pitched once John Devereux decided to hire a white overseer. Meanwhile, forced migrants tried once more to shape their lives so that they could survive in this next new place. At the end of January, Devereux captive Eliza Henry Maria married Sam Loftus, a man owned by another local enslaver. On February 23, a runaway from a nearby labor camp, Bill L., showed up Choctaw drunk. 
The hands convinced Bill to go back to his owner. Down on the Brazos, where enslavers had already developed a substantial complex of sugar and cotton labor camps, runaways could hope to reach the Mexican border. Bill was too far north and east for that. The people at Devereux's labor camp probably warned him that his fate could be akin to that of another runaway, a woman who had been recaptured in nearby Tyler County. Her owner dragged her back home behind his horse and tied her to the bedstead. The next morning, he tried to cut off her breasts. Then he rammed a hot iron poker down her throat. Survivors of these East Texas camps remembered that out there on the frontier, one could always hear the whip a poppin'. On March 12, John also had a guest. An old man on foot, a white man, called this morning and got breakfast, John wrote. The man had laid out all night in the rain, says he's a millwright and was born in Augusta, in the Shenandoah Valley into which southwest-bound coffles descended after crossing the Rockfish Gap through the Blue Ridge. He knew the Springers and the Landrums, old Augusta families from John's childhood. But from there the barriers of fortune and class lowered on the conversation. The sun rose higher. The poor man stood up and said his goodbye. He walked silently down the road in his own way representing another life ground under by the rolling frontier of the modern slave economy. John knew that he, too, would die a thousand miles from home. He had more to hope for than an old age of sleeping rough and begging for manual labor jobs. But the conversation with the wanderer led him to assess his life. John had lost four of his six children, and he was a widower twice over. Yet he admitted that he was much better off than, for instance, Job. Each of his own wives had been worth a cowpen full, such as the complaining spouse who had burdened the Old Testament figure. And perhaps Julian's second bride would be better than the first. John hadn't heard from Julian in months, but he was on his way. After the worst of the legal storm blew over, the younger Devera had returned to Alabama to pick up several dozen slaves who had been stashed on an ally's place since 1841. Now, on March 20, about 12 o'clock, a white employee arrived with three wagons and the Negroes from Montgomery, and John relished both their excitement at meeting with the Negroes here and Julian's letter, giving information that he had sold out and all was coming. Even better, the letter told of a birth of a son. The news operated powerfully on my sympathies, John wrote. Tears choked the old man. Julian remarried, now had an heir of his blood, and thus John did as well. A new generation of enslavers was emerging. Just a few days more, and Julian arrived. Overseer, three other employees, Julian and John. Six white men were now at the new house, where only a few months ago there had been none but the old man. All day and into the evening, the slaves worked the raw East Texas soil around the new cotton chutes. The United States had stretched its borders to incorporate these acres, these white men and their property. Slave prices were climbing. With the promise that the U.S. government would fund Texas bonds, surely credit would pump again through the veins that oxygenated the endeavors of southwestern entrepreneurs. Further southwest, cannon boomed and men marched, pushing the border onward. Here, a woman set supper out. All six men sat down to eat, which, John noted, filled all our chairs and table. The world had come right side up again.
9. Vax, 1839-1850 The girl giggled in her pew, looking back at seventeen newly emancipated Louisianans, frozen in the church entrance. Midstep between the doorway and the sea of staring faces stood Anna and her four children, Sarah and Frankie, both eleven, no parents, Betsy and her son, Maria, Marjorie, and their daughters, Little Sam, Jose, Rose, nine-year-old Amos. The big red turbans the women wore had been stylish decades ago in New Orleans when they'd been sold. Now they screamed country and slave to the Boston streets. A hand tightened on the knowing girl's arm, jerked down, pulled her around to face the pulpit. She needed to remember. Here at Unitarian King's Chapel on Beacon Street, she was also a visitor. Black Bostonians usually spent their Sundays elsewhere, such as the new AME Church. The day's assigned lesson was solidarity. Like many of the other visitors in the pews, her mother was what we today call an activist. She might have been at 1843's huge Faneuil Hall protest meeting, two years earlier. Slave catchers had come up to Boston in disguise. They had found George Latimer, an escapee from Virginia slavery, he and his wife Rebecca were living like free people. The kidnappers had seized the Latimers and thrown them into the Boston jail. But word had gotten out, and soon 300 free black men were surrounding the Boston courthouse. Their aim was to keep George and Rebecca there until the meeting at Faneuil could raise $600. Eventually, George's Virginia owner decided that taking the money and making out George's manumission papers might be his best option. Like these 17, many of the other African Americans in the church had also been adjusting to Boston. Some were runaways. Others had been forced to leave the South by laws that were designed to make life unbearable for free people of color. They were all in their way forced migrants, driven by slavery's expansion, driven to a place that they had built. If these newest Bostonians looked up in wonder at King's Chapel's austerely magnificent vaults, which soared like white wedding cake from pillars to roof, and if they felt intimidated by the rich variety of clothes on the congregants, clothes unavailable on the backwaters of Atacapa, the migrants had nevertheless spent their lives constructing exactly this world. They had certainly built the Palfrey family. John Palfrey the Elder had owned them. He was the Massachusetts merchant whose slaves had joined the 1811 rebellion when he lived in St. John the Baptist Parish along the Mississippi River. Palfrey had moved to St. Martin Parish, pursued by debts. The sheriff repossessed some of his slaves. He sold his silver candlesticks and hand-tooled pistols. But after 1815, he could borrow again, so he bought more enslaved people. The separations that the 17, or their parents, had endured as they had traveled from the Chesapeake Bay area to Mosporo's place in New Orleans, and then the work they had endured in the crop fields of the Atacapa, had rebuilt John Palfrey's twice-destroyed financial self. His own family was also divided, though not exactly like the families of the people he bought. His oldest son, John Gorham Palfrey, lived in Louisiana briefly with his father, but then returned to Massachusetts. Talents and birth destined John the son to be a Harvard prodigy. At 19, he was ordained a Unitarian minister. Then, in 1830, he became a Harvard professor. Later in the decade, he took over the North American Review. 
economic growth was producing a well-educated bourgeois that wanted to participate in a national high culture, distinct from that of old Europe. Under Palfrey, the review published the authors of America's emerging literature, from James Fenimore Cooper to William Cullen Bryant. Young John's four brothers stayed in Louisiana. Henry became a cotton broker, William a Bayou Teche planter. In 1816, however, Edward died of yellow fever in the New Orleans counting house where he worked. George caught a pistol ball in an 1824 duel. Death by hot-blooded dueling did not happen in the orderly, morally improving Boston of the North American Review. But the brothers stayed in contact. John G. Palfrey visited at the height of the 1830s boom, traveling on the steamboat Southerner. The letters he sent to Louisiana afterward asked ironically after enslaved people in the terms of racist parody. How are my sooty friends? When William contemplated visiting Boston, John the Younger warned him to bring his own slave. The black servants you can hire here are good for nothing. The Palfreys agreed on national politics. All were sensible Whigs, supporters of the party's project of national, social, and moral uplift. Henry sold copies of John's review to his planter clients, who perhaps squirmed to read an English author's claim that the continuance of slavery in the United States was a disaster. But the author's claim that American problems were caused by too much democracy surely found secret assent. Of course, the review didn't pay the bills any better than serious magazines ever have. When the Panic of 1837 hit, subscriptions dropped and bills multiplied. Henry helped the review stay afloat, sending young John $1,000 from Louisiana and convincing their father to lend $5,000 to the magazine. Slavery financed John Palfrey's Massachusetts literary project. However, the question of whether slavery should grow or shrink was about to strain the brothers' bonds. As John the Elder aged, the Louisiana Palfreys took care to advise their brother that he would, by the terms of their state's Napoleonic civil code, inherit one-third of his father's property. Most of the value of that property was in slaves. The best way to turn this share into money usable in Massachusetts would be to sell the people he inherited. But you might incur the risk, wrote William, of some busy abolitionist reporting that the Reverend Dr. P. had been selling human flesh, etc., etc., or living on the income of slave labor. Ties of blood linked John G. Palfrey to the southern slave-owning elite, and so did ties of economic growth. Northern growth in general, and the fortunes of its middle and upper classes in particular, were built on the forced labor of people like those whom John would inherit from his father. But modern Northern Whigs had grown increasingly disturbed by Southern politicians' domineering aggression. By late 1843, Louisiana Whigs were salivating over impending Texas annexation. But the constituents of the Massachusetts Whigs were holding a rash of angry meetings. They were spewing anger at New England cotton Whigs, whose close ties to the state's textile manufacturing interests supposedly predisposed them to cave in to enslavers' endless demands. In the autumn of 1843, one of the season's first cotton ships arriving in Boston also brought news from New Orleans. Old John Palfrey had died. John Gorham Palfrey now owned 20 human beings, a mixed crew ranging in age from Marjorie's unnamed infant child to Old Sam, 65. At the current price in New Orleans slave markets, their value approached $7,000. But John the Younger had decided that he didn't want any more money from slavery. 
This new conviction tells us something about his conscience. But it also tells a story about the outcomes of cotton-driven change in the United States over the first half of the 19th century, one in which Northern and Southern brothers began to argue uncontrollably in the 1840s precisely because they had helped each other to thrive for the preceding half-century. From the 1790s, the continually increasing productivity of enslaved hands had generated the most important raw material in the world economy at a constantly declining real price. This had made Southern enslavers incredibly wealthy and powerful, too. They were able to attract massive quantities of investment capital in the 1830s. Enslavers also exerted disproportionate influence over the national government, ensuring the creation and implementation of policies that benefited them. Yet the same work of hands that built a wealthy South enabled the free states to create the world's second industrial revolution. This one began in the cotton mills of Massachusetts and Rhode Island. From the mills, the development of the northern economy spiraled outward to transform wider sectors. After the South's economy grew into a bubble and then exploded, the North recovered while the South floundered. And the main reason for the North's quicker recovery was that Northerners had reinvested profit generated from the backs of the enslaved in creating a diversified regional economy. Now, having built a brave new world on the product of the cotton fields, Northerners such as John G. Palfrey were convincing themselves that slavery was a pre-modern, inefficient drain on the national economy. This was an inaccurate generalization from an accurate observation. Northern observers and anti-slavery activists saw the slower recovery of the Southern economy and thought it proved that slavery was an economic incubus and not an engine of growth. But they also had some powerful emotional reasons to look at slavery in this way. By 1843, enslaver politicians had begun to lunge at Texas and beyond, hoping to implement once again their classic formula, new land, new credit sources, a new boom. This time around, however, Northern brothers decided that there was a slave power bent on tyrannical domination and not just of enslaved hands. So, Palfrey consulted with several Boston acquaintances. The first was a political and legal mentor, U.S. Supreme Court Justice Joseph Story. Just the previous year, Story's opinion in the case of Prigg versus Pennsylvania had strengthened Southerners' claims that the U.S. Constitution protected slavery. Edward Prigg, a Maryland enslaver, had tried to recover an enslaved woman who had run to Pennsylvania with her children to escape sale to slave traders. State authorities blocked him. The case went to the Supreme Court. It put Story under pressure from two sources, slavery expansionists on the one hand, and African Americans who resisted being stolen on the other. He did not want to write the ruling, but he had no choice. In Prigg, the court ruled that the Constitution required northern states to hand over escapees, undermining northern states' laws that ended slavery within their own borders. Palfrey also met with the young conscience Whig, politician Charles Sumner. If Story warned him of the difficulty of getting the moral responsibility of slavery off one's back, Sumner helped stiffen John's spine for heavy lifting. Without notifying his brothers, John petitioned the Louisiana State Legislature to let him free the 20 slaves and allow them to stay in the state. The brothers learned of John's actions from a New Orleans newspaper story reporting the legislature's rejection of his request. Henry wrote angrily to John, The whole story would be published in the Attack of a Paper on Saturday. 
Local planters would read it. William and Henry would hear questions. Their attack upon neighbors knew that meddlers were choking Congress with petitions accusing slaveholders of being rapists, torturers, and slave traders. If the Palfrey's brother was an abolitionist, the local Whig party, in which the brothers were stalwarts, would suffer. Meanwhile, proposing emancipation for 20 people at Old John's camp would render the other 40 unmanageable. They'd send the news up and down the Atacapa by the Grapevine Telegraph, talk back to overseers, or run to New Orleans to find a lawyer for a freedom suit. Better to let them remain quietly at work, and time will gradually settle all difficulties, Henry insisted. Henry knew that enslaved people acted as someone else's hands because they had no other choice. If the grip slackened, African Americans seized opportunities. As the domestic slave trade surged in the 1830s and the flood of new bodies taxed White's ability to surveil the captives, the number of southwestern fugitives also spiked. Some made it all the way to the north. These new fugitives, who were also migrants, though against the grain of slave trade and credit circle flows, invigorated northern anti-slavery organizations. William Lloyd Garrison, taught by slavery survivors, had helped to mobilize politically effective petition campaigns that portrayed enslavers as opponents of whites' freedom, particularly whites' freedom to disagree with policies promoting the expansion of slavery. Still, Garrison insisted that abolitionists should reject politics, which required compromises of the sort that in his view rendered the Constitution a covenant with death and an agreement with hell. But by 1840, a new wave of survivors of slavery's frontier including activist fugitives such as William Wells Brown and Henry Bibb, was steadily pushing abolitionism into the current of political fight. Runaways pressured Judge Story, and runaways pushed enslavers' politicians to demand that other whites never disagree with them about slavery or its expansion. Paul Free's brothers didn't think he needed to contribute to the fuss, especially not when his grandstanding was their father's inheritance would cause them trouble. They had heard that Massachusetts Whigs were squabbling, but they were shocked by the force of the leverage that John was willing to apply to enforce his changing convictions. In 1843, their world was one of hard times and GTT, and Henry's firm was bankrupt. They could not fathom how John, who only a few years ago had been asking for their help, could leave $7,000 on the table. John G. Palfrey's personal route to rejecting slave ownership direct or indirect, was ironic. But it was only somewhat unique. His willingness to act on his own convictions, even at the cost of a substantial sum of money, was unusual, though his changing convictions were not. Yet he still had to make a literal journey of rejection. Louisiana state legislators had denied his request that they allow the people he inherited to stay among the community they had built in the wake of forced migration. So Palfrey decided to bring them back with him to Massachusetts. In 1844, worried that they would not be able to support themselves, he visited Massachusetts author Lydia Maria Child and asked her to help him find them new homes in Boston. Child, a woman's rights activist, and also one of the first white women publicly identified as an abolitionist, promised to help. Then he traveled to Lexington, Kentucky, and visited Cassius Clay, a relative of Henry Clay, and a rare surviving Southern proponent of emancipation. And Clay had repeatedly fought off attempts at silencing. One of his speeches generated into a knife fight with attackers rushing the stage. And to deter mobs, he loaded a cannon 
and parked it on his front porch. Emotionally fortified by Clay's example, Palfrey traveled to the Ohio River and boarded a steamboat headed to Louisiana. After enjoying a pleasant visit in New Orleans, Palfrey traveled out into the hinterland to Brother William's home. He found that Atakapa whites were not very tolerant. They threatened him, and William was less cordial than usual as well. Eager to conclude his business, John met privately with each adult slave. All were willing to go north, but they wanted to wait until the end of the year. Cotton prices were low in the early 1840s, and William, like many other southwestern enslavers, was allowing enslaved people more time to cultivate their own patches of cotton, corn, and garden crops. In turn, they'd eat fewer planter-furnished rations, meaning less ink on the debit side of ledgers. Men and women with small amounts of cash in their hands could also buy their own cloth, clothing, tobacco, and liquor. Like potential runaways waiting until the corn was ripe, Palfrey slaves didn't want to lose their investments of time and labor. And if they were to venture into the unknown in the hands of another John Palfrey, they wanted cash in their pockets. John left for Boston. His brothers had insisted that it would demoralize their own labor forces if John's slaves mixed with theirs once word of impending freedom got out. But William was happy that the short-timers stayed. They helped gather William's cotton harvest, for which John promised to pay them back wages for 1844, once they reached Massachusetts. When 1845 arrived, three of the oldest, Amos, age 61, Clara, 55, and old Sam, 65, balked at leaving their children and grandchildren, so John had parish officials bribed to permit these three to stay, despite their manumission. The other 17 said goodbye to everyone and traveled to New Orleans. From the same levee where they and or their parents had arrived, they boarded the bark Bashow and set sail for Boston. After their ceremonial welcome at King's Chapel, John began to send the newly emancipated people to various placements arranged by his abolitionist friends. With child's help, he placed Anna and her four children in Conondagua, New York, with a nice Quaker lady who needed a maid and boys to chop her firewood. Amos Marshall was sent to work as a servant in Brooklyn, as was Henry. The others, however, found employment in Boston before Palfrey could disperse them. Local African Americans who remembered their own difficult transitions helped the country migrants to put down roots in Boston's black neighborhoods. Like most Northern whites who adopted anti-slavery convictions in the 1840s, Palfrey didn't seem to be anti-slavery because of a belief in black equality of either capacity or right to choose. Freeing his slaves over his brother's objections, however, allowed Palfrey to demonstrate that Southern whites could not silence him, as they had tried to silence his fellow Harvard alum, John Quincy Adams, with the gag rule. Southerners' political bullying had pushed him into a new conviction that replaced his previous implicit belief in an America where slave-owning and slave-profiting brothers were united across geographic distance. Now, he concluded, as did other Northern whites, that slavery was wrong and that its growth must be stopped because it enabled Southern brothers to bully Northern ones. Back in 1819, Rachel had climbed the New Orleans levee and then descended into a floodplain forested by pylons of cotton bales, silos of British metalware, and screes of calico bolts from Manchester. By then, Britain was clearly already becoming a new kind of society and economy, escaping the old Malthusian trap with the help of the New World's ghost acres. Its transformations began with the creation of a cotton textile industry. On the capital that sector earned, 
piggybacking technologies and industries emerged. Soon, more people worked in commerce and industry than in agriculture, producing a market of millions of consumers. Raw materials imported from overseas, such as cotton, were essential. But by 1834, the empire concluded it no longer needed its own slaves. Although the United States and Britain spoke mostly the same language, the two nations found themselves in different situations. Britain lacked key natural resources, and therefore cotton, made by enslaved U.S. hands, was essential to industrialization. Now Britain led the development race by a full quarter century. Indeed, British-made goods still towered on the levee as the palfrey people embarked for Boston. For in many manufacturing sectors, such as high-quality textiles, Britain's dominance had starved American competitors of market oxygen. Some northern Whigs, believing the United States should be further on the path that Britain had blazed, blamed enslavers for forcing the young nation to implement policy choices that pushed the Republic away from replicating the empire's success. To them, the national investment in territorial expansion was a proof text. Endless robbery of Indian lands in the Louisiana Purchase, Florida, and Texas also meant that land would remain cheap. Immigrants might move to the cheap labor frontier instead of working in factories, keeping industrialists' labor costs high. Still, a quarter century after Rachel's 1819 arrival in New Orleans, some sectors of the U.S. economy were changing dramatically. One way to measure this transformation is to look at historical estimates of how fast the economy was expanding. Between 1774 and 1800, the annual rate of economic growth per capita in the United States was less than 0.4%. From 1800 to 1840, the average rate of increase climbed to between 0.66% and 1.13% per year, spiking in the mid-1830s, of course, but then crashing into the negative range for several years after the Panic of 1837. By the 1850s, it rose to almost 2% per year. By comparison, the per capita growth rate of the U.S. economy in the 1990s, its most successful decade since the 1950s, was about 2.5% per year. Traditional explanations for this metamorphosis into a post-Malthusian regime assume that the ultimate cause of growth was some characteristic unique to the North's free labor economy. Writers have credited an individualistic culture, puritanism, open land and high wages, amorphous Yankee ingenuity, government intervention in the economy, and government non-intervention in the economy. Yet we now also know that even as the entire economy became more productive, from 1800 to 1860, raw cotton production gained in efficiency still more quickly than other sectors of the economy. The increasing speed of cotton picking yielded a productivity increase of slightly more than 2% per year from 1800 to 1860. In 1832, the U.S. government compiled a fascinating document that reveals the way that cotton not only dominated U.S. exports and the financial sector, but also drove the expansion of northern industry. Jackson's Secretary of the Treasury, Louis McLean, hoping to find evidence that the 1828 Tariff of Abominations was protecting the emergent U.S. manufacturing sector, asked Democratic insiders across the free states to visit manufacturing establishments in their neighborhoods. They interviewed proprietors such as the manager of the old Sable Iron Works in Delaware County, Pennsylvania, who warned that if the tariff was reduced, our nail establishments could not be sustained. 
McLean's data not only showed that foreign iron was too cheap, but also revealed the crucial role of cotton textiles in driving the expansion of manufacturing. Over the preceding four decades, cotton mills yoked to water power had multiplied along the rivers and creeks of Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and Connecticut. They relied on labor from southern New England's worn-out agricultural sector, machinery designs stolen from Britain, and ever-cheaper southern cotton. Early factories had mechanized the process of spinning cotton, but still put out threads to families who used home hand looms to weave it into cloth. Mill-based power looms would enable the next transition to take place. In the 1820s, the Boston Associates, a group that included men such as Nathan Appleton and Abbott Lawrence, who would become Cotton Whigs and John G. Palfrey's political enemies, planted a factory town on the Merrimack River in eastern Massachusetts. They named it Lowell, after an industrial spy who had stolen loom designs from British factories. By 1832, four massive mills were in operation there, each integrated spinning and weaving under a single roof. Collectively, the mills contained $1 million worth of machinery, and these machines were tended by 3,000 workers, of whom three-quarters were women and girls. Each year, the mill used 5.5 million pounds of clean cotton, more than 13,000 bales, close to 15 million pounds as weighed on cotton stand balance beams. Thus, Lowell consumed 100,000 days of enslaved people's labor every year. And as enslaved hands made pounds of cotton more efficiently than free ones, dropping the inflation-adjusted price of cotton delivered to U.S. and British textile mills by 60% between 1790 and 1860, the whipping machine was freeing up millions of dollars for the Boston Associates. They invested it in other machines, higher pay for factory workers, and the finery and architecture that overwhelmed Palfrey's freed people in the church on Beacon Street. They also lowered the price of textiles, expanding both Lowell's markets and the access of ordinary people all over the world to factory-made cotton textiles. An entire planet's consumers shared in the welfare of the growing margin between the price of raw cotton and what the price would have been if picked by free labor. In 1820, only 3.2% of the U.S. labor force had worked in manufacturing, maybe 75,000 workers in all. By 1832, the date of McLean's report, factories and workshops across the North employed about 200,000 workers. The biggest share was in cotton mills, which were the most mechanized, capital-heavy, industrial kind of industry in the entire United States. Their 20,000 employees represented something new in U.S. history, an unpropertied, non-agricultural, free working class, the growth of which created demand for goods. In fact, both cotton labor camps and cotton mills generated increased demands for such things as iron goods, ready-made clothes, rope, furniture, and shoes. By the time of the 1832 McLean census, American industry was beginning to produce more of these goods. Non-textile production still usually took place in relatively small-scale workshops. These included the small but flexible workshops of New York's sweated trades, such as clothes-making, furniture, leather goods, and hats. Then, as now, the city attracted a stream of hungry immigrants willing to toil long hours in cramped conditions. Small size also reflected limited technology, for most industries had not yet found substitutes for human power and hand production. 
The tiny workshops scattered through rural areas near Philadelphia and Pittsburgh still dominated the iron industry. A rare exception was the Housatonic Manufacturing Company of Litchfield County in Connecticut, which in 1831 employed more than 100 laborers and made 600 tons of iron. Textiles made from southwestern cotton continued to lead the way, above all, in employing a working class whose wages created a consumer market that encouraged ever more dynamic market production in other areas. In his response to McLean's questionnaire, David Anthony of Fall River, Massachusetts, wrote that the town's mills employed 4,000 textile workers, all depending directly or indirectly on the manufacturing business, requiring as much agricultural produce as any other class of people in the country. Growing markets for food accelerated a commercialization of daily life that reached into the free state's rural districts. Farmers grew crops for the market rather than for subsistence. In Ohio and Indiana, farmers reached southwestern markets via the Mississippi River. And once New York completed the Erie Canal in 1824, upstate farmers could ship produce to New York City. Now that efficiency reaped rewards, northern farmers became more efficient. Their farms became larger, farmers began to specialize, and they demanded improved seeds and implements. McLean created his document for the political advantage of northern manufacturers, but it shows that as of 1832, cotton made by enslaved people was driving U.S. economic expansion. Almost all commercial production and consumption fed into or spun out from a mighty stream of white bowls. Politicians and entrepreneurs used the force of cotton's flood like a mill race to turn other wheels. Politicians, for instance, created a tariff system whose core principle was the protection of New England textile manufacturing. After the War of 1812, the British allegedly tried to smother America's infant industries by dumping goods below cost on U.S. markets. In response, Congress added a surcharge of almost 35 cents per yard to low-quality imported cloth. The tariff redistributed the productivity of enslaved hands to northern manufacturers and merchants in the form of profits and millworkers in the form of wages. And it allowed American mills to specialize. While finely woven British products filled wardrobes like the ones displayed in Boston churches, American mill towns produced cheap, rough cloth protected by the tariffs on lower-grade textiles. In fact, the same cotton that hands picked returned, spun and woven, in the shape of the rough New England cloth that enslavers bought to cover the backs of African Americans. On his South Down and Waterloo slave labor camps in Louisiana, for instance, entrepreneur John Minor issued a yearly ration of about 10 to 15 yards of cloth. With over a million slaves in the cotton and sugar areas in 1832, entrepreneurs might have bought 15 million yards of cloth, or all of Lowell's annual output. There was enough market space in the Mississippi Valley. Every year, one of the Hazard brothers, the owners of Rhode Island's Peacedale manufacturing firm, traveled down to New Orleans and then out to the countryside to sell their cloth, hats, and other goods. Planters measured women's shoe sizes, decided whether to buy ready-made clothes or bolts of cloth that year, and sent lists of men by rough measures of size, such as number one and number two. The cotton-picking sacks the hazards offered, made of sturdy cloth from Peacedale's steam-powered looms, were by far the very best he had ever seen, said customer John Routh. 
Even heavier grades of cotton woven with hemp were needed as wrappings for processed cotton, whether in the more backward round bale districts or among up-to-date planters whose newer equipment forced gin cotton into solid cubes. The specialized workforces of the southwestern slavery frontier didn't just transfer British money paid for raw cotton into infant U.S. textile firms. They also used American-made shovels, plows, ropes, hats, shoes, and hose. In fact, one estimate suggests that 30% of the transportable goods made in the Northeast in the 1830s were sold to the West and South. Thousands of northern women braided palm leaves from Cuba into the wide-brimmed disposable hats that enslavers issued, one to each hand, at the start of the picking season. In 1832, in Suffolk County, Massachusetts alone, 47 different palm hat-making firms reported a total of 863,000 hats made, costing 28 cents each wholesale, employing 2,500 women year-round. Although they were paid 30 cents or less a day, these women, in all, earned over a quarter of a million dollars, which, measured differently, was in turn paid by 50,000 person days of cotton picking. Another example of the way that Southwestern efficiencies provided markets for the infant industries of the Northeast is the story of the Collins Axe Works along the Farmington River in Connecticut. In around 1827, Samuel Collins's brilliant craftsman, Charles Morgan, mapped the axe-making process into specific tasks. Forging, tempering, grinding, polishing, each carried out by an individual worker. Classical economist Adam Smith, who illustrated the division of labor by showing how the production of a pin could be broken into dozens of steps to increase efficiency a hundredfold, would have been proud. So the Collins Works ramped up production to 1,000 axes a day albeit at the cost of an epidemic of silicosis, or grinder's asthma, a fatal disease caused by constant exposure to the dust generated by grindstones spinning against metal axe heads. Collins's southwestern traveling agents quickly generated huge sales, such as the order for 30,000 axes placed by one merchant firm. By the middle of the decade, the Collins Works was turning out a quarter of a million axes every year. Collins' axes came ready ground, so they could replace cheap British axes that came at a tariff-inflated price and did not have edges. Purchasers had to hire or buy blacksmiths to grind edges onto the British blades before use. 2,000 miles from Connecticut, along the Mississippi River, enslaver Haller Nutt broke open a couple of crates, $20 each, containing 12 Collins axes, and put them right into the hands of his male hands. In those hands, Collins axes literally remapped the natural world, felling hundreds of millions of southwestern hickories, oaks, cottonwoods, gums, and pines. An experienced overseer from Tipton County in West Tennessee, who said that there the timber is, I think, easier to clear than in other areas, calculated that a full hand, a healthy and strong man, working exclusively at clearing, would only open about four acres in a year. By 1860, after 36 years of settlement, Tipton County had 65,570 improved, cleared, acres. 16,000 man-years of swinging Collins axes had made Tipton into a giant organic machine for growing cotton and corn. And Tipton County was one of about 250 similar cotton and sugar counties across slavery's frontier. At every stage of the march from seed to mill to consumer, entrepreneurs of one kind or another 
sliced into tranches the margin of profit generated on the backs of enslaved African Americans, plated each slice, and distributed it to an actor in the world economy. Measuring all the elements of this dynamic process, which combined ever cheaper access to the world's most essential commodity with increasingly efficient manufacturing processes to drive the northern economy in new directions, might be impossible. But here's a back-of-the-envelope accounting of cotton's role in the U.S. economy in the era of slavery expansion. In 1836, the total amount of economic activity, the value of all the goods and services produced in the United States, was about $1.5 billion. Of this, the value of the cotton crop itself, total pounds multiplied by average price per pound, $77 million, was about 5% of that entire gross domestic product. This percentage might seem small, but after subsistence agriculture, cotton sales were the single largest source of value in the American economy. Even this number, however, barely begins to measure the goods and services directly generated by cotton production. The freight of cotton to Liverpool by sea, insurance, and interest paid on commercial credit, all would bring the total to more than $100 million. Next come the second-order effects that comprise the goods and services necessary to produce the cotton. There was the purchase of slaves, perhaps $40 million in 1836 alone, a year that made many memories of long marches forced on stolen people. Then there was the purchase of land, the cost of credit for such purchases, the pork and corn bought at the river landings, the axes that slaves used to clear land and the cloth they wore, even the luxury goods and other spending by slaveholding families. All of that probably added up to about $100 million more. Third-order effects, the hardest to calculate, included the money spent by mill workers and Illinois hog farmers, the wages paid to steamboat workers, and the revenues yielded by investments made with the profits of merchants, manufacturers, and slave traders who derived some or all of their income, either directly or indirectly, from the southwestern fields. These third-order effects would also include the dollars spent and spent again in communities where cotton and cotton-related trades made a significant impact. Another category of these effects is the value of foreign goods imported on credit sustained by the opposite flow of cotton. All these goods and services might have added up to $200 million. Given the short terms of most commercial credit in 1836, each credit dollar imported for cotton would be turned over about twice a year, $400 million. All told, more than $600 million, or almost half of the economic activity in the United States in 1836, derived directly or indirectly from cotton produced by the million-odd slaves, 6% of the total U.S. population, who in that year toiled in labor camps on slavery's frontier. The northern economy's industrial sector was built on the backs of enslaved people. And yet, by the 1840s, northerners like John G. Palfrey were increasingly likely to think, from their new vantage point where they stood on those people's backs, that their business endeavors did not need slavery. As early as the 1830s, Americans in the non-slave states were using cotton-generated wealth to develop a more diversified industrial sector that owed less to trade with the South. For instance, in 1832, the Collins Axe Works, one of the first large-scale manufacturing employers in Connecticut, accounted for almost a quarter of all non-textile manufacturing investment and employment in the state. But by 1845, when Robert Walker, Polk's Secretary of the Treasury, commissioned another survey of manufacturing, Connecticut contained about 25 different axe manufacturers. 
axes themselves were now only a fraction of the state's industrial production. New brass foundries, firearms manufacturers, and factories for hardware, clocks, hats, and carpet now employed thousands of Connecticut residents. And the vast majority of the brassware, machine tools, and consumer goods that came out of Connecticut foundries and shops were being sold to urban centers, factory cores, and commercial farming zones across the North. Although Connecticut had become the most densely industrialized state in the United States, it was not alone in shifting toward an industrial economy. By 1840, 500,000 Americans toiled in the manufacturing sector, almost all in the North. By 1850, their total number was 1.2 million, and manufacturing share of all workers had risen from 9% to 15%. A significant number of these workers were women, especially in the textile mills. The share that manufacturing contributed directly to value added in the national economy increased from 17% in 1839 to 29% a decade later, while the corresponding percentage for agriculture fell from 72% to 60%. Many economic sectors, some of which were completely new, such as railroad construction, depended heavily on the northern consumer markets that manufacturing labor forces were creating with their new cash wages. True, in the 1840s, cotton was still powerful. No one source of northern revenue was as massive as the rush of British paper that returned west each year in exchange for the cotton bales that had sailed east. No kind of manufacturing was as purely profitable as the hand picking a cotton bowl, if prices exceeded 10 cents per pound. Not the segment of northern commercial agriculture that fed the free state's rapidly growing cities, not the mills, not even the shops where mechanics built the latest version of the steam locomotive. Yet the increasing diversification of the northern economy enabled it to grow more consistently and resiliently than its southern counterpart. Even if the annexation of Texas reignited the expansion of slavery, southern economic health depended on the price of cotton. And northerners depended less on the cotton margin than they had before the late 1830s. Instead, they were creating an industrial margin. The textile industry, for instance, was shifting production into larger, more capital-intensive operations that could turn major investment into rapid revenues at high or low raw material costs. Between 1820 and 1860, New England textile mills increased their average capital investment by 600%. This is what historical economists call capital deepening. The average number of spindles per mill grew from 780 to 6,770, and the number of power looms from 5 to 164. And in both cases, the machinery grew more efficient at processing fiber into thread and cloth. Just like the increasing sleight of left hands in the cotton fields, the accumulation of machinery increased the productivity of mill workers, enabling the typical textile worker of 1860 to make cloth five or six times more quickly than his or her counterpart of 1820. By the late 1830s, northern textile manufacturing was creating new spin-off industries as well. The machinists who built and repaired textile machinery not only improved power looms and spindles, but also invented and then produced stationary steam engines that could be harnessed to factory machinery. Before the 1830s, steam engines were almost exclusively used to power rivercraft. By 1845, steam-powered factories were becoming the rule. Increasingly, they burned coal. In 1820, Pennsylvania had sent 365 tons of anthracite coal to market. 
by 1844, that number had climbed to more than 1.6 million tons. Eventually, fossil fuels would enable windfall profits parallel to those stolen from enslaved labor. Meanwhile, machine shops kept nurturing new skills and ideas. Improved steam-powered sugar mills that completed the revolution in sugarcane processing and sucrose extraction that had begun 20 years before with the vacuum pan, for instance. By the early 1850s, over half of the 1,500 sugar mills in Louisiana were driven by steam power. The same network of machinists created increasingly more sophisticated locomotives, and by the early 1840s, they were building a coherent railroad industry. This created new efficiencies through a rapid transportation network, as well as a demand for steel rails, fuel, and credit. As northern factories grew, employers could not hire enough workers. In response, European immigration to the north soared. One and a half million came to the United States in the 1840s alone. The Irish were the paradigm. By 1845, 220,000 had already come in a decade not half over. And the second half saw 550,000 Irish refugees arrive in the United States, fleeing British oppression and a famine that killed millions. A few of the Irish went to New Orleans, whose levees and cotton presses offered plenty of opportunity for laborers. But although many came west in American ships that had been loaded with cotton bales on the way east, this was not an unfree migration. Now that Manhattan had achieved financial hegemony over the cotton trade, ships passing between Liverpool and New Orleans usually turned off their old direct course to stop in New York Harbor, and there the immigrants disembarked. Outside of the cotton ports, jobs were scarce for immigrants in the slave states during the 1840s, and they had no desire to compete with workers driven by the whipping machine. The immigrants' choice to move to the North had a significant demographic impact, raising the Northern population from 7.1 million in 1830 to 10 million in 1840, and then to over 14 million by 1850. In the same period, the South grew much more slowly, from 5.7 million in 1830 to almost 9 million. Context of white supremacy. Uh, we are in chapter 9. Um, I'm not sure we're going to get to the end of this chapter, but we will be pretty close. Uh, anywho, uh, folks would like to chime in uh, to share. Feel free. Uh, the number to dial 641-715-7777. The code is 564-943-POUND. Press star 6 if you would like to participate. The number again, 641-715-3640. The code 564 three pound press star six if you would like to participate if you uh, would like to chime in and you don't want to use your phone you can use the free vote line uh, works anywhere in the world uh, you should see the link if you're listening at black talk radio network uh, if you need access to the link it is tiny t-i-n-y dot c-c forward slash one race and that is the number one that address again tiny t-i-n 
bit.ly.cc forward slash one race. And that is the number one. Uh, when you put that address in, look on the left of the page. You should see the link. Uh, it'll say free vote line. Uh, click that link. It'll open a small window on your screen. Uh, the top line, it is a drop-down menu. Select the number that I just gave out, which again is 641-715-3640. The next line, it will ask for the code. That code again is 564-943. The final line, it will ask for a name. You can put in a real name, nickname, uh, you can press random keys if you like. Uh, once you get all that entered, click the green link at the bottom. Uh, it should connect you to the live program. You should be able to hear us. Uh, it is the same procedure. If you would like to chime in, you'll see the dial pad on your screen. Press star six. Uh, when you do so, you'll hear the audio prompt to press the number one. Press it. We'll get you on the line, and you should be able to share your thoughts on the book. Uh, with that, all the folks who dialed in who have a hand up, uh, if you have commentary you would like to share, uh, feel free. Again, we are closing in on the conclusion of the book, so uh, kind of be thinking of concluding thoughts, uh, general impressions that you will take away uh, from the text as we come down the home stretch. Uh, let's see, Mr. Demery Four, Thomas in New York, uh, you all should both be with us. Uh, feel free to participate. Yes. Yes, sir. Uh, greetings, guys. Greetings to the other callers and listeners. Um, hopefully, we can get something constructive out of this reading. Uh, first of all, I like to start <clears throat> with terms that the author is using. The abolitionists. I've got equals races. Conscious wig equals racist, cotton wig is a racist, slave owners and overseers, all racist. So no matter what uh, name that they're calling this, these white people fit in the category of racist. Whether it's uh, William Lord Garrison uh, mobilizing politically effective petition campaigns that portrayed enslavers as opponents of white freedom, particularly white freedom to disagree with politics promoting the expansion of slavery. I say that any disagreement that whites had with slavery, whether it was William Lloyd Garrison, John G. Palfrey, Charles Sumner, Linda Marie Child, the first white woman to publicly um, uh, renounce slavery, John Quincy Adams, Joshua Giddings, all of them. Even the Supreme Court Justice Story, who hated to write that ruling where he ruled in favor of slavery, you know, these well-meaning whites, uh, so to speak, or so-called, did not have the best interests of blacks in mind. All of this was about economics. There's a picture on page 306 <clears throat> that shows an idyllic picture of a white slave owner and 
slaves in the background, and the caption underneath is after the wreck of so many entrepreneurial plans in the wake of the bursting of the slave credit bubble, enslavers increasingly portrayed their own operations as being driven paternalistic uh, family impulses rather than of financial one. But I don't think that uh, any of us is buying that, and I don't think anybody buys that. But in reality, this picture shows slaves in nice clothing and um, they're dancing and they're happy and this and that. But in reality, um, the slave owner uh, distributed clothing usually once a year and often at uh, Christmas time, you know, and he passed them out according to the sex and the age as well as labor performed. So children, for instance, went around without clothes entirely until they reached adolescence. Elderly slaves who could not do physical labor were not given shoes or extra layers of clothing, you know, where they were measuring people's feet <laughs> by rough measurements of number one, number two, they didn't care whether it fit or not, you know. And um, when it comes to justice, those who need the most get the most help. But in this case, the elderly slaves, the, when they could no longer do physical labor, uh, were not given uh, clothing to cover their body. And it, the diets was high in fat and starch and low in nutrition. So consequently, you had a lot of sicknesses and illnesses, including scurvy because probably a lack of fruit products and rickets. I think that, I'm not sure about that. I think the rickets is uh, related to uh, uh, polio. But anyway, um, another note, noteworthy uh, point, the slave catchers, you know, searching for the slaves that the slave uh, owners had ran away with, um, would get into disguise, go up to Boston, and they found George Latimer and his wife, Rebecca, seized them and threw them in jail. But 300 free blacks surrounded the Boston courthouse as a show of solidarity and black self-respect. And I think that, uh, you know, it's an interesting lesson there. And also we should note that William Wells Brown a novelist, uh, speaker, auditorio, a speaker, spent a lifetime working to end slavery uh, through his uh, abolitionist effort, as well as Henry Bibb. And uh, William Wells Bryant was a friend of, uh, of Frederick Douglass also. And you know, I found it strange that doing a little research that, I don't know if this is true, but they said the 
same British couple that purchased uh, Frederick Douglass's freedom also purchased uh, William Wells Brown. But anything that these white people do is small and insignificant when you look at the type of terrorism and the torture and pain that they caused upon the lives of millions of enslaved people. It was also a mention of Muhammad Ali's namesake, Cassius Clay, relative of Henry Clay. Now we know why he changed his name. And to make matters worse, uh, Congress had enacted a gag rule where congressmen couldn't even discuss ending slavery. And it was pathetic that John G. Palfrey, a doctor and preacher, whatever, concluded that slavery was wrong and that its growth must be stopped because it enabled white Southern brothers to bully white Northern ones. I'll mute my line and give somebody else a chance. Thank you for taking the call, Gus. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. <laughs> that is a very important line from the book, I'm sure. Others might have a thought or two on that uh, from Mr. Palfrey. Uh, I think this is Thomas in New York. Did you have a uh, commentary you wanted to get in, sir? Bobby Hope? Yes, sir. Well, I just have a quick comment to make. I think a major act of racism uh, after the guest we had last, earlier last week, or should I say earlier this week, um, the, the lady and the gentleman who wrote The Slave Coast, this author is still um, given a presumption that the money was in the actual labor of the slave, not in the credit that the slave produced, as the, the man and the gentleman, um, the lady and the gentleman pointed out so eloquently this week. And I think that's a major act of racism. You know, it's not so much the price of cotton. You know, it's the amount of babies these um these black witches could produce. You know, that that's really driving the economy down here. And I'm my line. Absolutely. Integral aspect, uh, the breeding industry required mandatory rape of black people. Uh, the person that might even qualify as part of what Mr. Demi Ford was saying, the, the clothing and what have you, your value drops significantly for black females if you uh, were not able to uh, reproduce uh, just if, you know not everybody's able to have a child uh, not everyone is able to have a child uh, and then once you become older and you have uh, passed your childbearing years as they say your value drops dramatically uh, caller uh, down in Florida do you have a okay. com comment you wanted to add in yeah back in the can I be heard yes sir hey Dan, this is Devin in Miami now, in the beginning of um, of Area 9, I was actually listening to one of your past recordings from the beginning of the uh, year, earlier last, or later last month. Uh, the statement was, others had been forced to leave the South uh, by laws that were designed to make life unbearable for free people of color. And um, one of the uh, past guests you have was Miss um, Bullet or Dorothy Bullet. And she was basically saying how much she adored her grandfather and this and that. And I was thinking how far back her family must go into slave ownership and how 
for a long time, they've been using the strategy of setting the laws, like her family shut down the schools in order to get their way, to make sure that schools weren't integrated and they made life basically hell to ensure that they got their way the same way that was going on back here during the uh, slavery times. I just wanted to uh, go ahead and announce that, that I caught that. All right, so I'll go ahead and mute my line. Oh, right on, right on. Um, just for clarification, uh, it was Kristen Green uh, who was talking about her family closing the schools uh, in Farmville, Virginia, Dorothy Bullitt, different white woman, suspected race soldier. Her family uh, were the uh, enslavers, uh, torturers in Kentucky uh, who had, a hundred black people enslaved, uh, where she talked, both of them talked about the, the respect that they had for their, uh, family, both, uh, Kristen, but it was Kristen Green who talked about how much she loved her grandfather and, and these folks were responsible for black people not having public education for five years in Virginia. That was, uh, Kristen Green. Uh, let's okay. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right. Thanks for clarifying that for me as well. And also in regards to Kentucky, um, Cassius Clay, I wonder if he knew that the uh, guy who is who he is named after was a proponent of emancipation, which is basically just a uh, a racist that is trying to go with a different form of subjugating non-white people. I want to say I know Mr. Demery brought that point up that I've I've heard him particularly after you know he made his conversion and joined the Nation of Islam and. Uh, was speaking with uh, Malcolm X and Elijah Muhammad, uh, him talk about where he got his name and that being a part of uh, why he, he changed uh, his name. Have folks heard him, like any archival footage of him talking about that publicly? I'll take that as a no, but I, I think that... <laughs> I never did. Oh, okay, okay. Um, I think that might uh, exist I'll, I'll make some time to see if i can can do some research to see if he comment but i i my suspicion is that i think i have heard him uh speak about that directly um that he did do did do some digging to find out where he where his his name came from uh in the state of kentucky um let's see uh if folks have other comments we will we should have ample time we have uh, a little less than 30 minutes before we get to the second uh, audio segment and we'll pick out a few uh, few things that stood out uh, for me and then I'll check if folks have anything else that they want to make sure they get in before we get to the second audio uh, segment as well um, let's see uh, Ross did you have something you wanted to add as well I agree with Gus I came, I came in about 40 minutes into the reading so uh, right now, I'm just listening. I might chime in as I hear you speak or some of the other speak, um, uh, people chiming in. But I would definitely, definitely want, wanted to, uh, to put my hand up early because I will be commenting on the, as of the next segment as well. But I'm just listening for now. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Good to hear from you. Thank you. Everyone. Good to hear from you, too. Thank you. For sure. For sure. Uh, some of the things uh, I highlighted as we went along with the reading. Uh, let's see. We're at the very beginning uh, where it's talking about uh, Bill is a black male who tried to uh, escape down uh, in the Texas region now that they've opened that up and we're going to move our niggers over here and, and have you all being tortured and working over here. Uh, and it said that they tried to encourage him not to run away just to reread the passage here because uh, there's a lot of uh, minimizing. Uh, I know this is Black History Month, but there is a lot, uh, a huge tendency to uh, minimize and 
use a lot of euphemisms and pussyfoot when we talk about white supremacy, period. Even we're talking about white supremacy in its 2016 manifestation, uh, but particularly when we are talking about the way it operated uh, during this era of slavery. Uh, but it reads, Bill was too far east, or excuse me, too far north and east for that to try to escape into Mexico. Uh, the people at Devereaux's labor camp probably warned him that his fate could be akin to that of another runaway, a woman who had been recaptured in nearby Tyler County. Her owner dragged her back home behind his horse and tied her to the bedstead. The next morning, he tried to cut off her breasts. Then he rammed a hot iron poker down her throat. Survivors of these East Texas camps remembered that out there, on that frontier, one could always hear the whip a-poppin'. That's the sort of thing, like, just glossing over this and, you know, this was a family affair. Uh, I think Mr. Demi Ford, when uh, it, I, they, they have great illustrations, I think we pointed that out, at least people who have a, a copy of the book have tried to point that out throughout that it might be worth getting this book. Even if you don't, I'm not saying buy it, said that consistently, I'm not saying buy it, but I mean if you go to a bookstore and just pick it up to look at some of the pictures, uh, if you go to the library to look at some of the photographs, they have some pretty uh, striking uh, images uh, and the captions, uh, and they have one in this book as well, but I think uh, for the folks who try to present some notion that this was, this was, you know, like a family business. And, you know, yes, we, we had the Negras. I think even Dorothy Bullitt said that, that, you know, she was part of the family. Kristen Green, since she was brought up, that's, you know, not plantation era uh, slavery racism. But same thing. But she talked about having uh, a help in the house, a uh, black female. And she was a part of the family. You know, she was just... Uh, one of us and you know we ate meals together and all of that that this is I mean it, I can't even say that it's nonsense it is it is a astronomical act uh, of terrorism it's beyond tacky uh, and I think there it's done deliberately to confuse a lot of non-white people because unfortunately I've heard many many non-white people when they speak about uh, slavery even we have a tendency to minimize this sort of thing, uh, which you just heard uh, happening to this black female having her breasts cut off, this sort of mutilation that went on all the time. This is just a routine act of what racism, white supremacy uh, is all about. And the alcohol showed up as well. It talked about this uh, bill showing up drunk before it got to uh, that passage. Um, Moving on, there's the image uh, that I talked about where it's presenting this image that, hey, we're all a big happy family and it's got the black people, got the dog in the picture and the white children and uh, the, the patriarch, the matriarch of the family, these white people out happy and it's got black people in the background, looks like they uh, were dancing, uh, at least to me it looks like they got some sort of dance or festivity going on and hey, this is just, we're all having a little bit of fun, yeah, we do a little bit, uh, little bit of work in the cotton field and you know, then once the day is over, we go and, and have our little celebration, have a little punch, have a little rum. This was grand old times. There's been a lot of this uh, down through the years, uh, and, you know, every effort should be made. And just accurate use of terms, uh, calling this torture, calling this terrorism, calling this the rape industry. That's what it is, and bam, you can use some of this material here to uh, back that up. Uh, Moving forward, I'm in chapter 9 now. Uh, Bax, this is running, supposed to be from 1839 through uh, 1850. Uh, let's see, the portion, this right here, it, uh, I thought this portion was huge. I think Mr. Demi Ford touched on this. I said it was one of the passages at the very beginning of the book where he said, Mr. Baptist, that 
uh, freed black people, quote unquote, freed black people during this period uh, prior to the Civil War, that they tended to support whites in times of crisis. And I said then, I'm not sure that that's true. This could be an act of racism on the part of the author that if you are a quote unquote freed black person, it's not like you're not experiencing racism. Uh, you could be stolen a la Solomon Northup. Anything uh, could happen to you. They made laws. He's discussed some, quite a bit of that in the book, actually, that they made laws in uh, Louisiana Territory uh, and other uh, southern states where if you were a quote unquote free black person, you had to leave. You couldn't even stay here. So how is it that you would have quote unquote free black people? How is it that they would be uh, loyal to whites and even the book uh, The American Slave Coast. I said those books will just be connected now because they are covering the same material and uh, this book is even referenced in that text uh, where it has instances repeatedly when white people were fighting with other white people, both the Civil War, uh, when they're fighting with white people in Britain, the War of 1812, uh, the American Revolution, consistently the call comes out, hey, we're fighting with these white people. Uh, if you Negros, if you want to come and join us, we'll liberate you. Uh, just, you know, mutiny, run away, come join us, and we'll dip. Consistently, you see white people fearing black people are not loyal. We treat them like garbage, and their loyalties are suspect. Uh, you see this consistently where white people are concerned that black people are going to misbehave, so we got to keep an eye on them. Even if we're warm with other white people, we got to watch our Negros because we know we're dogging them out, we're torturing them, we're terrorizing them. They might do anything. We got to make sure we keep an eye on them so that this doesn't get out of hand. We're outnumbered in areas like South Carolina and other parts of the Deep South. We're greatly outnumbered, too, so this could be a big problem. I just don't think that free black people would have been, quote unquote, loyal to whites. And this is an example right here to refute what he said earlier in the text to have 300 black people. This is not one or two uh, or a dozen. That's a massive number of black people to come. Uh, and say, no, you're not going to steal these black people and take them uh, back down south. This is where these uh, slave catchers, uh, racists, have disguised themselves and uh, come to Boston to try to, to steal these black people and bring them back uh, to continue terrorizing and torturing them. Uh, and, and this show of force by free black people uh, ends up causing these racists to say, hey, we'll just take the money where we can be compensated for our property and get out of here and, you know, we'll let these niggers stay. Um, I, I just think that that's totally false, and I think there's quite a bit of, uh, of evidence that would uh, corroborate that, quote-unquote, freed black people uh, were not allied with white people at a time of crisis or any other time that they seem to be uh, frequently displaying black self-respect and doing what they could to work against uh, the system of racism as it was manifested at that time. Um, let's see, moving forward. Yeah, I thought it was great. He's talking about the Palfrey frame, uh, family where he says uh, he writes this letter asking about how his city friends are. I thought that was fantastic hearing uh, the tackiness from the 18th century. Uh, let's see. the Where he's talking about the Palfreys where John Palfrey, he's supposed to be one of the brothers who is up north uh, in the Boston area, and he has uh, had a what they call change of heart, and he doesn't think uh, slavery is a good thing. Uh, in my view, this is another uh, standard procedure where there have to be presentations of good white people. Definitely put that uh, in quotes. Uh, with this good white person after, he and his family for generations have made all this money off of torturing and terrorizing black people 
now I have a change of heart and say, well, no, we maybe we shouldn't be doing this to the Negras. Uh, I want to free them. I think Mr. Demery Four already stated, regardless of what they do. Okay, so I go down here, I get my handful of Negras, and I'm going to bring them back uh, to Boston so they don't have to go through all this anymore, and I'll help some of them get uh, employment or housing or what have you. Big whoop. I'm not impressed at all. I think consistently just... Uh, in our uh, confusion uh, that we see this sort of thing or you get a story about John Brown who I'm sure is going to be coming up in the text uh, or Charles Sumner or any of these other white people, Abraham Lincoln, anybody got to get these images in and that has a a really warped effect on our understanding of what it means to be white. Uh, I'm glad he did bring out some of the details later in the chapter about uh, how the Palfrey family even even once he's come to a point where he's saying that we don't want to, I don't think it's correct to have these Negras uh, enslaved anymore. Even then, you have still benefited, you still are directly, indirectly benefiting from this industry because the torture and rape of black people was such a, I mean, that was the economy of the time. So you're still benefiting even if you're saying, well, yeah, we maybe we shouldn't run the plantation this way anymore. Maybe we shouldn't have this this type of slavery anymore. Maybe we should switch up and do something else. I also thought it was hugely important, the sentence that uh, Mr. Demery Four uh, read where he said that, this is Mr. Palfrey who's saying we shouldn't do slavery anymore, where he says that uh, the Southern enslavers, they may change their conduct and try to bully us, Northern whites. I think that's hugely important. That is a consistent theme. If you look at any of the literature and studies of this period of time, it was not white people out of some uh, altruistic humanitarian concern for black people and their treatment. It was these white thugs down south, they have a disproportionate amount of power and are telling us what to do and how we should run things. This is incorrect on the whole, and these folks may be coming up here and trying to bogart us and treat us like that. That ended up being a big part of why they had this disagreement uh, amongst themselves. Not we care about black people. We're so concerned about the Negro, so we're going to go down here and you know set these folks straight. I think that's hugely important, something that people should really uh, keep in mind. Uh, also had it uh, highlighted, uh, the passage where they're talking about uh, John Palfrey, where he's going to... He's going to liberate uh, some of uh, the Negroes that, you know, he owns, uh, where it says uh, uh, proposing emancipation for 20 people at the old John's camp would render the other 40 unmanageable. They'd send news up and down the Atacapas by the Grapevine Telegraph, talk back to overseers or run to New Orleans to find a lawyer for a freedom suit. Better to let them remain quietly at work and time will gradually settle all Difficulties. I thought that was really important as well uh, because, again, to me, it just shows that the same thing that I say now, whites know that their system can be toppled. And apparently, uh, not with it, it would not take a whole lot. Just seeing these seven black people getting, quote, unquote, emancipated would be enough to send the rest of the Negroes like, oh, my gosh, we, we're going to be talking back and we're going to be doing everything we can uh, to rebel uh, against these terrorists. That right there, I think, is, is so important because so many people, both when they're looking back at this period of racism and when they're talking about white supremacy right now, 
it's consistent, it's cliche that black people are lames, black people are chumps, black people didn't fight back. Mr. Baptist even says that in this book. He says that very early in the book, right where he says that black, uh, freed, quote unquote, black people were loyal to whites. He also says that there were relatively few revolts or rebellions amongst the black people in this area of the world. And I said to you that I thought that was false and could be an act of racism on his part. Uh, and you'll hear a lot of non-white people who assert that black people, we didn't fight back or we don't fight back now. And that's why white people keep doing this. That is astronomically false. Like your speaking privileges should be immediately revoked because you clearly are not informed. Uh, if you're making that sort of statement, racists have been very effective at propagating that lie uh, that black people just haven't fought back, and that's why this continues. You see it right there. We can't even let these black people know that we're going to free, quote-unquote, free 20 of them because you know, who knows what could happen. It, it could be total anarchy. They may start killing us or talking back, not listening to us. That right there I thought was extremely important passage. Um, let's see, moving forward. Yeah, I had the line about Cassius Clay. You all brought that up. I thought it was significant, though, where they were talking about Cassius Clay where – he talks about how much terrorism he faced from other whites speaking against slavery. I think Mr. Deming Ford brought the gag order up where he said that it got so bad that one of his speeches, it degenerated into a knife fight uh, where whites were rushing the street, uh, stage to kill him. Uh, and that eventually it got so bad that he kept a loaded cannon parked on his front porch. That astronomical dedication to the system of racism white supremacy uh where you know it's that bad me talking about this i could die at any moment me going out here i have to look out for folks with knives in the crowd and i mean to get to the point where you have to keep a cannon on your front porch i even had a pause for dr francis cress welsing uh and the attack that she was under where you can't even be at your residence uh talking about this issue without being bombarded whether it's them coming up directly or whether we just have all kinds of uh, noise pollution in the area to disrupt your quality of life and your health uh, if you are doing anything to try to disrupt, counter the system of white terrorism. Uh, I also thought it was really important when they talked about the uh, court case, uh, the decision, uh, make sure I get the judge's name correctly, uh, Prig, uh, Prig versus Pennsylvania. Uh, this is Supreme Court Justice Joseph's story, I thought it was great. Mr. Demery Four brought that up. This another illustration of quote unquote well meaning good whites, as Mr. Demery Four pointed out. Uh, in my view, it you don't get any credit saying that he felt really bad about this, and it with with great pain I have to write that yes, uh, these Southern racists they have every right. They are constitutionally allowed to go north, even though, quote unquote, slavery isn't there. They can go north and retrieve their niggers and it, southern white people. You have to help them in the, help them in this process. You can't obstruct them from being able to go and reclaim their property to say that he didn't want to write this ruling. He had no choice. You get absolutely no credit at all from me. I, I don't look at this person any different than I look at the white Supreme Court justices who issued the Dred Scott decision a few years later. Probably going to be coming up on that soon in the book. The Dred Dot, uh, Scott decision, Plessy v. Ferguson, any of those uh, decisions, it is no different. Uh, you're enforcing racism, white supremacy. You're practicing white supremacy. That's just what it is. Uh, in my view, the author presenting it in this manner as though uh, Justice Story was greatly pained about having to issue this. You're practicing racism. Let's just keep it moving. Um, let's see. What else did I have here? Got that about Mr. Clay. 
Yeah, there's the sentence again where they spell it out, uh, where they're talking about the palfreys, where they've said that this is wrong, uh, that slavery was wrong, and that its growth must be stopped because it enabled southern brothers to bully northern ones. I should say us uh, enabled southern whites to bully northern whites. Huge, uh, a huge aspect of how uh, this conflict unfolded. Uh, see if I have any anything else before I go to other folks. If y'all have other comments. Um, I thought there was a lot of uh, really dense information uh, kind of towards the end of the chapter, just really detailing how much the production of labor, black people being enslaved. I thought Mr. Demi Ford pointing out the, the rape, just the bodies, period, of black people adding to the capital uh, and financial strength of the country at this period in time. But I think that is hugely important, uh, just detailing that this is driving, this is the economy, torturing black people. This is the economy that the increase in cotton, this is not just happening uh, by chance. This is the whip. This is going out and chopping off black females' breasts and beating people and shoving hot iron pokers down black people's throats. Uh, all of this is making the economy more productive. It is filling the coffers, the banks of racists all across the world. Uh, I thought that was hugely important because, again, people, I just don't think that people process and generally talk uh, about finances in this period or at any time in this manner being directly connected to the torture and terrorism of black people. Uh, I just don't think that people generally talk about slavery in this manner. I've even heard a lot of people saying that this was not uh, efficient, you know, that this was not really the best uh, type of labor. It would be much better to have free people of labor. And I do think he does have a lot of uh, great detail in the book to show that, that that is simply not accurate, that there is no way people that are wage earners, there is no way that their pro productivity it does not even come close when you can just beat someone all day long and demand that they produce more. And then if they don't do it, short pounds, bam, and just go to work, you know, beating on them, flogging them, starving them, whatever you want to do, whipping machines, whatever your pathological mind can produce. Um, I will pause there. Um, I'll just get in that last sentence where, he, uh, <laughs> again, the detail where he describes it, where they get the increasing efficiency that is demanded of enslaved and terrorized black people, where he says, uh, this is in uh, Tipton County, where he says that 16,000 man years of swinging axes had made Tipton into a giant organic machine for going cotton and corn. Tipton County was one of about 250 similar cotton and sugar counties across slavery's frontiers. 16,000 man years of swinging axes. Like that is a very different way of processing what this era of white supremacy, when people talk this era of slavery, when people talk about it, to think of it in those terms. Uh, I will pause there. Folks have any other uh, comments? Feel free to chime in, Mr. Uh, Devin in, in Florida. I'll open your line back up. Just watch the background noise because I could hear the program echoing in the background. I don't know if you're listening on a computer or if you got speakerphone or what have you. Just watch the background noise, but I'll open your line back up as well if folks have any commentary. Can I be heard, Gus? Yes, sir. There were a few things that you brought up that I found um, very interesting. Um, when you talked about the white, the white slave owner freeing uh, the the black slaves that he had after basically 
mistreating them and abusing them and using them up, essentially. It just reminds me of the modern version of that being when you work in on the plantation, a modern plantation, and the company knows that they're going to fire you, but instead of them letting you know before you get to work, they let you come to the job, work the full day, and then at the very last minute before your day is over, they tell you, you know, you're letting you go today or they're telling you you're fired or whatever the case may be. That's what that reminds me of. It's almost like we're going to use you up for every last drop, and then after that we'll discard you. Um, it made me think of that. Then when you read the, the section earlier um, on page 305, where they described uh, Bill Ellis coming home chalked or drunk, it made me think of how um, white people utilize non-white people as the scapegoats for their pathology because hard liquor um, was invented by white people to pacify both uh, the indigenous Americans, uh, Africans, and everybody else that they came into contact with. But yet, since we are always considered the savages or less than human, they always associate um, hard drinking with non-white people, just like when um, when marijuana was made illegal, the whole idea, the premise of that was that, you know, black people and, and Mexicans were smoking marijuana. It was getting them, making them insane, and they were running around raping white women. So when he when they described, described Bill Ellis coming home Choctaw drunk, it just made me think of that consistent association of um, wild, drunk, inebriated savagery and how they always tend to associate it with us when they're the perpetual alcoholics, lushes, and drug addicts. Um, also, excuse me, um, when you brought up the, the thing about uh, Dorothy Bullitt uh, calling her, her, her help family and describing, um, you know, describing her as if she's this, this peripheral member of the family who's treated in some special manner, it kind of brought up a memory of um, something that my mother-in-law told me about um, when she was younger. She was kind of, kind of um, severely mistreated by her um her mom and she was passed around between different relatives and she told me about um the fact that because even though she wasn't really dark she's probably like a, a caramel color but she was darker than her other relatives that she was asked that she was um actually staying with in virginia that they used to make her sleep on the porch um and it made me think about how just that dynamic that dorothy bullet discussed and white people in general the help type of uh situations um, creates a, 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 a twist in the psychology of how black people view family in a way in which my mother-in-law could be taken in by relatives and mistreated by being for, forced to sleep on the porch because she was darker than the other people and they didn't want her in their house. Um, and that reminds me of like the help thing. It's like you're an outsider, but yeah, you're family and they talk about you in this way to other people in a way that seems endearing. Again, um, rhetorical ethic. That's, that's the best way of putting it. Uh, Dr. Marin Rodney put it. And, and that rhetorical ethic, how we as black people absorb that same rhetorical ethic and play it out against one another. But yet, like Dr. Wilson used to say, you, you stand in line in the store and there's a white, a, a white person in front of you and you hear them say, oh, good evening, how are you? And the, and the black person at the register is so nice to them. And then as soon as you come up next in line, they're looking at you, rolling their eyes like, oh, who's this nigga coming up now? Um, it just reminds me of that, just how we absorb that same rhetorical ethic. And then, um, oh, the section where you discussed um, the slave master chopping, attempting to chop off the breasts of the black female. Wow, that reminded me of the Congo because they were notorious for chopping off women's hands and breasts um, if they did not produce enough rubber. Um, one of the other torture, torturous things, or actually murderous things they used to do was that um, if a, a female did not uh, 
procure enough rubber for that day, and they would weigh had the same some identical weighing system that they did with cotton. They would um actually tie the woman's hands, each hand to the backside of a horse, and then beat the horse so they run in opposite directions and tear her in half. Um, so these are the kinds of horrible things that happen to our people, and I really don't think we can fathom the brutality and the savagery of these white reptilians. And um, thank you. I'll I'll meet my line. All right, well, Mr. Uh, oh, the retired firefighter in Florida, you should you should be with us as well. Did you have comments you wanted to get in, sir? Thank you, sir. Yes, sir. Uh, what I have been thinking about uh, is uh, I have learned that criminals, master criminals, uh, place layers, layers upon layers of people between themselves and and uh, their their enemies, uh, and in this case, the racist white supremacists. What this book teaches me on is uh, that they apply the same strategy uh, by the idea of of uh, bringing over out of Europe, because at that point in time it was full. It was full with this aristocracy and, and uh, royal uh, system uh, that they were uh, kind of like, uh, okay, send people from Europe uh, over to this part of the world to assist into uh, keeping the, uh, the strategy of slavery uh, with non-white black people uh, functioning smoothly. Uh, the the first police, the first uh, quote unquote law enforcement were people who call themselves Irish. White people call themselves Irish. Uh, uh, in service jobs of different types, other than you know police department, fire department, whatever. You know that 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 period point in time, and through our labor uh, under the global system of racism, white supremacy, it made it. This area of the world, the chief means of of uh, manu- uh, manufactured wealth, uh, things that you can get right out of the ground, process it like like it's nobody's business, you know, like it's never been done before, on the highest efficient level, uh, 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 and, and of course with us it was through the most horrendous, uh, uh, unprecedented level of terror. And, and mistreatment that the world has ever known, uh, it hasn't been surpassed. Uh, 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 it's only been continued in more sophisticated manners, but we're, we're, we're studying the brute, open uh, uh, means to where the stench is still, still alive in the world today of what took place even back then. Uh, and, and as I mentioned, emphasize, I want to emphasize the layers and layers of white people that they brought in in between that that may not know the story like a Ben Franklin or a George Washington knew, but they participated in the process and still is participating in the process. Uh, it, it's, it's like... I can only say, wow, you know, to it, on how awesome, awesomely evil 
uh, 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 all of this uh, uh, had, was and, and how it still is, is uh, functioning. This is why this part of the world, the white people of this part of the world, became so financially uh, proficient so fast and for so long. Uh, I mean, it's unprecedented in world history, as far as far as I, I, I understand it as. Uh, uh, it's because from they 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 just owned owned our our bodies, our total bodies, from the top of our heads to the soles of our feet, and and worked it, and worked it, uh, you know, at that particular point in time. And it, it was still during the, it was still during the period, in my opinion, of expansion. And and uh, basically, without me having to go around in circles and say the same thing again, it it it, it the the most prof the most the most manufactured wealth was produced during that time. Uh, that still you know still is a a, a phenomenon today. Uh, based on that, you know, just the layers. It reminds me of the Godfather, and and how. The movie Godfather, how they had one of the uh, one of the killers to to uh, testify uh, in front of the uh, Senate committee, uh, and and that was some of those those uh, later white uh, people that came in from Europe, and they knew they were coming over to 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 uh, feast on and add on to our demise. They they understood that, you know, and, and to benefit from it. Uh, uh, in, a, in a level that they were uh, ordered to based on uh, some sort of uh, hierarchy system. They were even a hierarchy system, a system of racial white supremacy. But they knew they were still going to benefit from it. And it still is basically uh, a, a, a fashions of that today. It still is, still is like that today in a, in a, in a, in a lot of terms. So uh, very interesting from that standpoint as far as equating what took place back then to right now. Thank you. Right, right. Uh, other folks have commentary they want to make sure they get in. We have about three minutes before we get to the second audio segment. Hey, can I just um, piggyback on what the firefighter just said? And um, just as he um, so eloquently laid out what they're doing here, at the same time, I mean, they're totally destroying India and China. While they're doing this, I mean, just globally, um, all at the same time. I mean, we focus a lot on our history, but um, when you look at the same period of time with the British and the Spaniards and the Portuguese and all the people that put us here, um, put us in this position, uh, just moved on to the next one to go torture and, and destroy another civilization. Just, um, you know, genius murderers, man. I hit my line. Last few uh, minutes. Anybody have anything uh, about the text portion of the text that we covered? Yes, sir. Happy heard. Yes, sir. Uh, I just wanted to make one last comment on when John Palfrey uh, came to get his inheritance. <clears throat> it was about twenty. Uh, enslaved uh, Africans. Well, three of the oldest, Amos was 61, Clara was 55, and old Sam was 65. 
And then the book said they balked at leaving their children and grandchildren. So John had parish officials bribed to permit these three to stay despite their manumission. <clears throat> and earlier, um, one of the brothers was concerned that if uh, these slaves were going to be free, you know, that they would, uh, it would demoralize their own labor force if John's slaves mixed with them once word of impending freedom got out. I thought that was, uh, I don't even know what to think about that. But I think that the older ones, you know, we already pointed out that, you know, when they can no longer do the physical work or <clears throat> if the women were past childbearing age, then they were worth less. And um, not being given shoes and all that, it maybe had a job where they would cook food for the other slaves, you know, maybe something that they could tolerate. And then why would they go off into another area and not knowing what's going to happen to them? Uh, they didn't have any idea what freedom was going to be like. In other words, I wanted to state that it was uh, sort of like being in prison where you're institutionalized and then even when you are set free, you have a difficulty adjusting and uh, more likely end up back in the same place. So I think that that may have had uh, some to do with it, a uh, lifetime of torture and whipping. And then they got into the point to where they could even make a few pennies, I think, around there. And then, you know, <clears throat> with the institutionalized uh, aspect of slavery, you know, that may have had. So I doubt that uh, John Jay bribed any officials to let them three stay. I'll mute my line on that. Thanks. Mm. I just wanted to add, I, I think that's significant too. I think, I think also that could be uh, an act of uh, black self-respect uh, on the part of the uh, older black people, uh, Amos and Clara, old Sam, because uh, it says that they didn't want to leave their children uh, and grandchildren. And I mean, I can't, to me, that seemed logical uh, in this era. I, I would probably not want to leave uh, my grandchildren or children uh, behind uh, in, I think they're in Mississippi uh, or any any of these regions. I would not want to leave them uh, behind to have God knows what uh, happened to them. I mean, you already, the rapes and torture and everything else. So, that, I mean, that seems super logical and, and could just be an act of uh, black self-respect uh, on their part. Just real quick, they also thought in that when it's talking about moving them, relocating them uh, to Boston, it didn't seem like what they were doing was substantially different from the occupation and the way that they were using their time and energy uh, while they were on the plantation down, like I said, I believe in Mississippi, uh, where it says that they end up getting jobs uh, as maids and they're chopping firewood and <laughs> sort of, the, I mean, that seems pretty similar. I mean, I guess you relocate now, you're up in cold Boston uh, and you're still working for whites, doing menial labor, probably not being paid very much. I mean, I, I can see how, okay, this is a, 
an improvement in your quality of life to some degree. But I mean, <laughs> it, uh, it just it did not strike me as as that much changing, uh, which I could also see some black people saying how, uh, wow, this is we have some concerns about all this relocation and what have you, if this is not going to be substantially different from what we were doing previously. Um, and I also thought it was important that it, it said that some, uh, I guess, Mr. Palfrey, John Palfrey, that he did help them uh, get employment uh, in relocating. But it also said that some of them uh, got employment before he aided them because other black people who were already in the Boston area helped them to transition and get employment and what have you. I thought that was also a great example of uh, black self-respect, uh, black people trying in, in the weak position that we're in to uh, do the best we can uh, to help each other. Uh, I will leave it there so we can get to the second audio segment. Uh, we will have ample time. Folks want to share. Uh, once this segment concludes, things stand out. If you have things that uh, you did not get to share from this section, just make a note. And as I said, we should have ample time. Context of white supremacy. This is Edward Baptist. The half has never been told. We are in chapter nine. Chapter nine. Uh, backs. Night, uh, excuse me, 1839 through 1850. Uh, we'll go ahead and get started with the second audio, uh, second audio segment. Immigration, the main source of the free state's population growth, held down labor costs and created massive markets for consumer goods. Most immigrants began at the bottom rungs of northern society and economy, where they were canal diggers, housemaids, or coal miners. But in the distribution of political representation, they each counted as five-fifths of a person, which meant increased northern power in the House of Representatives. The number of congressional representatives determined the number of electoral votes a state could cast in the presidential election. So reapportionment shaped the influence of states and regions in the executive branch as well. In 1820, 42% of the House members came from slave states. Along with Southern equality in the Senate, Enslavers had thus needed only a handful of free state allies to block any proposal they did not like. But after the 1840 U.S. Census, the number of slave state representatives dropped below 40%. After 1850, free state representatives would make up two-thirds of the House. The accelerating growth of the North's economy made Northerners less likely to act like Southerners' dependents in politics. In the two years after John G. Palfrey's 17 slaves made their migration to freedom in Boston, his increasing frustration with Massachusetts cotton wigs and their willingness to compromise with their southern allies, who were backing Polk's policy of slavery expansion, drew him into the political arena on the side of the conscience wigs. He wrote and published Papers on the Slave Power, an indignant pamphlet with chapter titles such as The North Defrauded and Browbeaten. It described the South as a unitary political bloc that was enslaving Northern whites' political selves. With both Justice Story's ruling in Prigg versus Pennsylvania and the memory of the attempted kidnapping of the Latimers still fresh in his mind, Palfrey claimed that Southerners could travel to Boston and allege that even a white Massachusetts citizen was merely a light-skinned runaway slave. There is the law. It says nothing of color and by it the governor of Massachusetts is just as liable to be carried away and sold in the southern shambles as the blackest or least considerable citizen in the Commonwealth. Harrison Gray Otis, the richest lawyer in Boston, as much as his boot black. Palfrey singled out Nathan Appleton and Abbott Lawrence, Massachusetts textile magnates and cotton wigs, 
blaming them for persuading Northerners to let Texas into the Union. Palfrey's papers offended proper Bostonians, who had once supported him as clergyman, professor, and editor. Some ignored his greetings in the street or barred him from their homes. But Palfrey was not the only one accusing New England cotton lords of collusion with their suppliers in the Mississippi Valley. The newly emerging Northern critique of enslavers and their allies was different from that of immediatists, such as William Lloyd Garrison, who demanded that America purge itself of sins. Instead, the new critics argued that Southern slavery damaged the national economy. Two decades earlier, in the midst of the Missouri crisis, some expansion opponents had made similar claims. But over the intervening years, the rapidly increasing wealth in every sector touched by cotton rendered the claims that slavery undermined economic progress unpersuasive. Certainly, New England's lords of the loom had used slave-made cotton and slavery's market to become the wealthiest people in the free states. Yet, in the early 1840s, the increasing sense of Northern economic dynamism and Southern doldrums emboldened many Northerners to assert that they owed slavery nothing, certainly not fealty to the political sway of what Palfrey was calling the slave power, a term he probably learned from clergyman, newspaper editor, and Liberty Party activist Joshua Levitt. Levitt's journal, The Emancipator, argued that slavery reigns by fomenting the strife of party at the North. The new alignment of interregional coalitions shaped by Van Buren, Jackson, and their opponents meant that if Democrats in Vermont, for instance, wanted to win national elections, they had to avoid antagonizing their party brethren from Alabama. The latter made it clear that support for slavery was the price of party alliance. So, the Vermont Democrats motivated voters by emphasizing their differences from Whig neighbors at home, rather than from enslavers in the South. Here, however, was the most distinctive piece of Levitt's attack. I consider slavery, Levitt told an Ohio audience in 1840, to be the chief source of the commercial and financial evils under which the country is groaning. At the time he made the speech, the U.S. economy had not yet recovered from the panics of 1837 and 1839, and Levitt insisted that the slave power's distortion of public policy was a major cause of the Depression. We find ourselves, Levitt announced, subject to the exhausting operations of slavery, a series of policies and patterns that drew the wealth of the free states into the slave ones. Sure, the southwestern slave frontier had appeared profitable in the 1830s, as investment and forced migrants flowed into the Mississippi Valley at an unprecedented velocity. Everyone wanted stock in the Vicksburg, Grand Gulf, Brandon, and other Southwest banks, Levitt recalled. But the great drain of Northern capital to the South, to meet the demands of the domestic slave trade, $100 million to Mississippi alone, Levitt calculated, was just another one of the ordinary defalcations of slavery, layers of theft and fraud, from the theft of labor to the rampant dishonesty of enslavers toward their northern creditors. Although never had trade throughout the national economy appeared so vast and profitable as it had in 1836, the bubble burst, and all that capital is gone, sunk, irrecoverable. Enslavers owed uncountable millions to northern merchants, bondholders, factory owners, and banks, and had no plans to pay much of it, and yet even the South has nothing to show for it. The South's problem was slavery, Levitt insisted, for it was in essence opposed to saving, productive investment, and the kinds of technological improvements, 
specifically the introduction of labor-saving machinery, that were transforming the North. Palfrey repeated Levitt's critiques, for he and other Northern whites, and some Southern ones too, were starting to believe that reality was demonstrating the accuracy of his economic analysis. Everyone could see that the North was surging ahead in prosperity and population. Enslaver politicians had long used their power in Congress to expand unfree territory, steer northern capital south, shut off discussion, destroy monetary systems so that enslavers wouldn't have to repay their creditors, and tear down tariff protections for the northern industrial sector. But now, enterprising northern manufacturers no longer needed the south, so there was no justification for acceding to continued southern dominance over the political process. And yet, Though still stuck in what Northerners increasingly considered self-inflicted economic depression at mid-decade, Southern politicians were still demanding that the major focus of U.S. foreign policy be the expansion of slave territory. And the slave power still exerted disproportionate political influence. Polk, the current occupant of the White House, was a slave owner, like his predecessor. Northern Democrats still obediently tried to silence abolitionists, and the need to get Southern votes in order to compete with Democrats trapped Northern Whigs in similar binds. Levitt insisted that Northerners needed to raise the electoral cost to their politicians of conciliating the South. This meant drawing voters to anti-slavery expansion third parties, or factions, by developing the true nature of slavery, as Levitt put it, showing how the South opposed Northern white men's political rights and economic prosperity. Direct resistance to the political domination of the slave power would then replace party interests with regional ones. Indeed, by the time Palfrey published his own pamphlets on the slave power, a few years after Levitt, changing economic and political circumstances were about to make more northern whites than ever suspect that Levitt and Palfrey might be right about the South. Congress had approved the declaration of war with Mexico on May 13, 1846. A few months later, on August 8, and with war well underway, President Polk asked Congress for $2 million to fund his administration's negotiations with Mexico. Northern Democrats had backed Polk and his war, but plans for expensive negotiations suggested that he was now thinking of extracting still more territory from Mexico. At the same time, he was compromising with Britain, abandoning his promise to assert a claim to present-day British Columbia. Representative Hugh White, a Whig from upstate New York, seized this opportunity to challenge Northern Democrats to prevent the Appropriations Bill from paying for the expansion of slavery. David Wilmot, a freshman Democrat from Pennsylvania, took the bait. He offered an amendment that mandated that all territory acquired in the war with Mexico must become free. If implemented, the Wilmot Proviso would permanently block slavery's geographic expansion. African Americans had been saying for years that slavery's power built on the acquisition of new territory. On the frontier, enslavers could destroy old standards of production, disrupt families, securitize the individuals extracted from them as commodities, sell the financial instruments thus created on markets around the world, and ride the resulting boom of excitement. Some whites had listened, including Gamaliel Bailey, editor of the anti-slavery National Era. What does the past teach us? That slavery lives by expansion, he wrote. Close off new territory and one close the veins that pulsed excitement into credit markets. 
close off the land that might come from Mexico, and one put a term limit upon the political stranglehold of slave owners over the larger and more rapidly expanding northern population. Because Wilmot's proviso promised to close off southern expansion in every sense, it placed extreme pressure on the two major parties, which were complex interregional alliances that depended on balancing the interests of politicians on both sides of the Mason-Dixon line. Southern Whigs opposed the proviso, while Northern Whigs, who knew they faced potential conscience Whig revolts back home, supported it. Southern Democrats opposed the proviso, but Northern Democrats, supporters of national expansion yet anxious about the voters at home, froze in the oncoming headlights of the midterm elections. Ultimately, most bolted in panic. When the proviso came to a vote in the House, only four free state Democrats opposed the bill, which passed 85 to 80 in a sectional vote. Then, in an apparent replay of the 1819 to 1820 Missouri debates, the Senate blocked the proviso. But 1819 and 1846 were different years. In 1819, many in both North and South saw a future in which exported cotton would drive economic growth. Now, expectations of the economic future had evolved. And just as Joshua Levitt had hoped, David Wilmot and other Northern Democrats, most of whom hated both Whigs and black people, were voting against the slave power and with anti-slavery Whigs. Such developments could destabilize the delicate balances inside U.S. politics. One immediate consequence was that opposition to slavery expansionism became a newly viable political identity for many Northern candidates for office. In 1847, John G. Palfrey ran for Congress in a special election to fill a seat in a district once dominated by cotton Whigs. Supporters proclaimed that he had shown his faith by his works, having emancipated a large number of slaves in Louisiana who came to him by inheritance. Palfrey won joining a freshman congressional class that also included a newly elected Illinois Whig named Abraham Lincoln. Through 1847, however, neither pro- nor anti-Wilmot proviso forces could gain the upper hand in Washington. And meanwhile, on the far side of the Rio Grande, U.S. troops were winning battles against Mexican forces. General Zachary Taylor, a veteran of counterinsurgency struggles against the Florida Seminoles, defeated one Mexican army in the north of the country. California fell to U.S. troops and U.S. settlers. General Winfield Scott landed an army of 12,000 men on Mexico's Gulf Coast. Among Scott's junior officers were names like Robert E. Lee, Ulysses S. Grant, and Thomas Jackson. Retracing Hernando Cortez's 1519 route, Scott's troops fought their way west toward Mexico City. After winning a crucial battle at Cerro Gordo, they circled west of the city. On September 12, U.S. troops stormed Chapultepec Castle, the capital's last strongpoint, and then occupied a city that had been a capital a millennium before Washington's founding. As news came back that the halls of Montezuma had been conquered, the Polk administration became entranced by the idea of annexing all of Mexico. But the New York State Democrats, the largest and oldest branch of the party, split in two over whether the new territories should be open to slavery. As Southern constituents grew more agitated about the crisis, John C. Calhoun stepped forward to offer a doctrine that had been developing for a few years now, but that was peculiarly suited to the current situation. 
This idea reamplified slavery's leverage in the political equations of expansion, using constitutional interpretation to highlight the declining relative demographic and financial force of cotton. It was not a rehash of nullification, which Calhoun had abandoned after his defeat by Jackson in the 1830s. It was far more significant than nullification. Back in 1819, Calhoun had told the rest of Monroe's cabinet that he believed that the Constitution allowed Congress to ban slavery from federally controlled spaces, such as new territories. But by 1836, abolitionist petitions were calling for Congress to use its power over federal territory to end the slave trade, and even to ban slavery itself in the District of Columbia. In January 1836, Senator Calhoun responded to these demands with a speech that outlined a foundational idea. He told the Senate that he did not find in the Constitution the right of petition to which the anti-gag rule forces kept referring. But he did find the Fifth Amendment, and it limited federal power over individuals' property by decreeing that no one could be deprived of his property without due process of law. Calhoun now proceeded to build a sweeping principle on the back of this sentence. Due process, he insisted, could mean only trial by jury of a specific criminal. Here was the opposite of due process, legislative fiat that erased the property claims of a whole class of people. And were not the slaves of this district property? Calhoun asked, and were not their enslavers a whole class of property owners? Presumably, Congress could not prevent people from buying or selling said property either, since saleability is usually one of property's characteristics. Calhoun was stating an idea that would eventually be known as the doctrine of substantive due process. The due process requirement to which the Constitution referred could not be fulfilled simply by passing a law, for a law that invaded the rights of property owners ran up against something too fundamental for procedure to alter. In Calhoun's vision, the Fifth Amendment was a geological outcropping that confirmed that beneath the Constitution lay an underlying substantive tectonic plate of natural law that allowed owners to hold and use property. In 1844, a Mississippi congressman named William Hammett even argued that this federal right also protected enslavers from the action of state legislatures. Thus, the state-mandated emancipations completed by northern states were unconstitutional. Shocked northern congressmen foamed in anger at Hammett's claim, but enslavers seemed to accept it instinctively as soon as they heard it. After the Civil War, pro-big business legal thinkers from the North would, ironically enough, take up a version of Calhoun's idea. From the 1890s through the New Deal era, the Supreme Court repeatedly used substantive due process to strike down legislative attempts to regulate Gilded Age industry, protect workers' rights, or break up monopolies. Substantive due process shaped and continues to shape the political economy of the United States in enduring ways. Like his modern cousins, Calhoun offered in his argument for substantive due process a doctrine of radically unfettered property ownership. It implied that enslavers were forever protected from popular majorities that might try to prevent them from taking full advantage of the boundless resources of a conquered continent and an ever-growing world market. Nor is it clear that Southern partisans had the worst argument in the terms of precedence available in their time. Justice Story's 1843 opinion in Prigg v. Pennsylvania gave an anchor point to the claim that the Constitution recognized enslavers' fundamental rights to property and human beings 
and compel the federal government to protect those claims, even against state legislatures. The Ur version of substantive due process had been fermenting slowly since 1836, but it had usually stayed in the shadows. How awkward it would have been in the early 1840s if, in the midst of GTT escapes and bond repudiation, enslaver entrepreneurs had claimed that governments could not impair the rights of property and contracts. However, war and conquest had by 1847 created new incentives for politicians to find justifications for new slave territory. Calhoun's argument went even further than that, of course, envisioning an alternative and highly radical version of economic modernity. The ambient friction of the Wilmot Proviso debate gave Calhoun and his allies the opportunity to use their logic on audiences that were ready to hear about how the North was trying to strangle the constitutional rights of the South, on the back of whose success the Free State's own growth built. In February 1847, Calhoun offered the Senate a set-piece exposition of his argument that enslavers had a fundamental right to use and move and exploit enslaved human beings. In this, the most significant speech of his long career, he laid out the constitutional and political argument behind which increasing numbers of enslavers would unite over the next 14 years. First, Calhoun insisted that the territories were the equal possession of all states, free or slave. He also rejected Congress's right to require that new states' constitutions outlaw slavery. And then he swung his sledgehammer. Resolved that the enactment of any law which should directly, or by its effects, deprive the citizens of any of the states of this Union from emigrating, with their property, into any of the territories of the United States, will make such discrimination between citizens from different states of the Union, coding those from free states as worthy and those from slave states as unworthy, and would therefore be a violation of the Constitution. This resolution referenced the common blood and treasure argument, that the slave states had shared equally with the free in the costs and dangers of conquest, but it ultimately depended on his claim that the Constitution protected enslavers' ability to hold, move, sell, buy, and exploit people as property. He implied that the federal government should pass laws to enact the institution of slavery on federal territory, for to do otherwise would be to deprive individual slave owners, and indeed all Southern whites, who were, after all, potential property holders, of their rights. Thus, the only constitutional fate for the territories was a future in which federal marshals rounded up runaways in California, federal attorneys defeated freedom suits in New Mexico, and federal customs officials regulated and protected the interstate slave trade into Utah. Thus Calhoun offered a viable alternative to the claim that Southern political bullying was protecting an economically backward institution. Southern politicians could now claim that constitutional rights mandated political solutions to their own decline in relative political power. And at the moment when Calhoun made this move, the vision of perpetually expanding slavery as an alternative but still modern economy was once again becoming plausible. The second half of the 1840s brought a small uptick in cotton prices. Enslavers always believed that fresh territory would yield a future of creative destructive bonanzas lest one claim that Calhoun's intervention was irrelevant, because the frontier farther southwest was too arid to slake enslavers' thirst for cotton booms. Remember that a century later, Arizona would be the nation's biggest cotton producer. California's Central Valley, using a labor force that was barely free, 
would then be the most profitable agricultural district in the world. And after these 1847 resolutions, Southern newspapers and magazines began to shape a fantasy in which a new generation of right-handed entrepreneurs opened up northern Mexico, yet unseized lands in the Caribbean or Pacific Islands such as Hawaii, on whose volcanic soil sugarcane had thrived since the first Polynesian settlers planted it. I give no advice, concluded iron-faced old Calhoun, but I speak as an individual member of that section of the Union. There I drew my first breaths, there are my hopes. Hopes not just in South Carolina, as in the days of nullification, but also in Alabama at his son Andrew's slave labor camps. Hopes of an ever-expanding South. I am, said Calhoun, a planter, a cotton planter. I am a Southern man and a slaveholder, a kind and merciful one, I trust, and none the worse for being a slaveholder. I say, for one, I would rather meet any extremity on earth than give up one inch of our equality one inch of what belongs to us as members of this great republic. He knew others would agree. Still, as of 1847, the game Calhoun played was a long con. The bonds of loyalty linking non-planter Southern white men to national parties had been forged in the hot fires of the 1830s, and many still hoped that their party's leadership would put forward a viable interregional consensus candidate for the next presidential election. James Polk did not plan to be one of those candidates. The president had grown weary of the gridlock over the territories. He was also preoccupied by negotiations in Mexico City, which had been going on almost as long as those in Congress. One reason for their delay was the Polk administration's increasing desire to persuade domestic public opinion into demanding that the United States swallow the entire conquered nation. John G. Palfrey's Massachusetts Whigs protested that the annexation of Texas had stimulated the appetite of the rest of the American people for more territory. If the slave power continues to be strong enough, wrote Palfrey, states carved from Mexico would be admitted to the Union with constitutions, forced on them through artifice and intimidation, recognizing and perpetuating slavery, and adding to the slave power's strength in Congress. About the only thing upon which Calhoun and Palfrey could agree was that all of Mexico was too much. We have never dreamed of incorporating into our union any but the Caucasian race, Calhoun proclaimed. More than half of the Mexicans are Indians, and the other is composed chiefly of mixed tribes. Ours, sir, is the government of the white race. Palfrey also thought that Mexico's nameless and mongrel breeds would fit poorly into the United States. Just as Calhoun tried to convince Southern Whigs and Democrats to align with each other along sectional lines, Palfrey and his fellow Massachusetts conscience Whigs were splitting their party's 1848 state convention by insisting that it should reject any presidential nominee who did not state clear opposition to adding new slave territories. When the resolution failed, Palfrey and his conscience allies left the party. Meanwhile, the New York Democrats also divided. One faction, led by Martin Van Buren and called barn burners by their opponents, after an apocryphal farmer who burned down his barn to kill off the rats, argued that the expansion of slavery hurt the free white laborers of the North and South. Proclaiming allegiance to free trade, free labor, free soil, and free men, these dissident Democrats gathered with Whig splinter groups and Liberty Party activists and created the Free Soil Party. They named Van Buren, a man who had spent decades displaying his allegiance to Southern planters, as their presidential candidate. 
His running mate was Charles Francis Adams, son of original conscience Whig John Quincy Adams, who had been felled by a fatal stroke on the floor of the house earlier in 1848. Back in Washington, the Senate had finally received the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, the result of negotiations with the representatives of defeated Mexico. In addition to confirming Texas annexation, the treaty gave the United States 525,000 additional square miles of the conquered nation-state, 13 acres for each of the 23 million people in the Union. This was the third biggest acquisition of territory in U.S. history, after the Louisiana Purchase and Alaska. The Senate eliminated an article that promised recognition of land claims granted by Spanish or Mexican governments. The treaty opened the New Southwest to a massive Anglo real estate grab. If that wasn't enough incentive for settlers to start dispossessing Mexicans and Indians, gold was discovered at Sutter's Mill, California, in January 1848. Yet the great giveaways promised by Guadalupe Hidalgo did not turn a controversial war into a success. In the course of two years of debate over the fate of the conquered territory, Southerners, anxious to protect their future access to political leverage and entrepreneurial possibilities, had moved toward arguing that a slave West was the price of union. Meanwhile, Northerners, convinced that Southern enslavers were treating them the way they treated their slaves, had already destabilized electoral calculations. The political system had depended since the bank war on the stability created by two-party alliances, each one balancing regional interests. Those coalitions might not survive the election chaos coming in the fall. Even if they did, it was unclear that the parties could persuade enough Southerners or enough Northerners to accept compromise and resolve the question of organizing the new territories. In fact, 1848 was putting immense pressure on political arrangements on both sides of the Atlantic. Parisians barricaded the streets and fought the French army. When the smoke cleared, the terrified bourgeoisie was welcoming a second Napoleon, the first one's nephew, as the leader of a new republic that would soon become an empire. Across the Rhine, people rose up against the rulers of various German states, demanding a liberal, unified nation in some cases, and more radical outcomes in others. When the revolutions collapsed, political refugees fled the European mainland, including one named Karl Marx. He landed in London and spent the rest of his life holed up in British libraries. But many 48ers came to the United States. Meanwhile, in July, in the little Erie Canal town of Seneca Falls, several hundred reformers gathered for an impromptu women's rights convention. Among the organizers was Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Frederick Douglass, escapee from slavery and one of the most effective conduits of enslaved people's critiques of white power, was in attendance. The convention drafted a Declaration of Rights and Sentiments, a document that claimed for women the right to vote. The Seneca Falls gathering helped launch a movement for women's rights in the United States. This development would have long-term effects on politics that would be as radical as anything done in Europe in 1848. At the same time, few male politicians took the Seneca Falls gathering seriously. The revolutionary ferment in Europe was more widely discussed, yet it seemed far away. Far more pressing, judging from the obsessive interest of newspapers and the inflammatory rhetoric of politicians both inside and outside the Capitol Dome, was the still unresolved question of the Mexican territories and its potential effect on the fall presidential election. National party leaders, 
seeking to contain destabilizing confrontations, tried to nominate centrists who could appeal to both sections. The Whig Convention chose Zachary Taylor, one of the Mexican War's victorious generals. Virginia-born, first cousin to James Madison, Taylor was a southwestern planter who owned more than 100 people in Louisiana, and he had the useful virtue of possessing no political biography. The Democrats did something similar. Brushing off a convention walkout by Southern extremist William Lowndes Yancey, they nominated Lewis Cass of Michigan. Cass's campaign circulated region-specific campaign biographies, one for the North and another for the South, with predictably targeted emphasis. But the new Free Soil Party still won 10% of the national popular vote, showing that pressure initiated by the Wilmot Proviso had opened seams in the party system. Ironically, Free Soil votes helped put a slaveholder in the White House. In New York, Van Buren and the Barnburners pulled enough ballots from the Empire State's Democrats to allow Taylor to collect all 36 of the state's electoral votes. The general also swept most of the South. Southern whites assumed that the president-elect would support slavery's expansion into the Mexican session. Yet Calhoun did not trust either Taylor or the party system. In January 1849, he and four other Southerners in Congress issued a printed address. It warned that if the North's anti-Southern attitudes continued to grow and the South did not respond, slavery's expansion and slavery itself would end. A Congress dominated by the likes of John Palfrey the Younger would ban the interstate slave trade. There would be no injections of new capital and no stick to hold over enslaved people's heads. An expanding black population would demographically drown whites and forced emancipation would follow. After that, interfering northern whites would demand for ex-slaves the right of voting and holding public office, resulting in the prostration of the white race, political servility and forced interracial marriage, a degradation greater than has ever yet fallen to the lot of free and enlightened people. The only way to avoid this disastrous future was for Southern whites to unite in demanding equal access to the territories. As Calhoun argued in a Southern caucus called to discuss the address, the South could take their slaves into California and New Mexico. Congress was bound to put it, slavery, on the same footing with other property. It required no law of Congress to authorize slavery there. A united Southern front behind this substantive due process interpretation would force the North to a calculation of consequences. Inevitably, the North would back down, and the expansion of slavery would be implanted permanently in the nation's constitutional landscape, even as new territories became slave states. Most of all, political victory would compensate enslavers for the economic losses they had suffered since the late 1830s, which had lost them control over the economic rudder of the United States since new slave state recruits in the halls of Congress would block all future anti-slavery measures. One might be tempted to view pro-slavery expansion zealots as extremists who were more interested in intellectual abstractions than in actually expanding slavery. But in little more than a decade, these people would launch a war to achieve a redefinition of the United States in which the national government made an explicit and perpetual commitment to defend and spread slavery. They were serious, and they were inking these ideas about slavery as a fundamental property right protected by the Constitution, with all that implied, into the common assumptions of Southern politics. In 1849, the propagandizing so far by advocates of substantive due process as a Southern right was already working. 
The address drew widespread support in the Southern press. Editors reminded common whites that the struggle to keep slavery's borders open was their fight too. If the slave frontier closed, the risk of a repeat of the Haitian Revolution would increase. Even without a massive rebellion, poor whites would be taxed to compensate enslavers for mandated emancipation. Afterward, the rich man could use wealth to maintain his position, but the common white man would lose that native, freeborn, and independent spirit which he now possesses. Constituents responded to this kind of talk, and Mississippi state politicians organized a slaveholders' convention for October 1849. Senator Henry Foote, Calhoun's Mississippi ally, began to organize an 1850 region-wide convention, an implied threat, a gathering that could be repurposed into a body ready to deliberate on nation unmaking. In Congress, meanwhile, Southern Democrats maneuvered to commit the federal government to new guarantees of expansive definitions of slaveholders' property rights. They started with the recovery of fugitive slaves. Justice Story had conceded in Prigg that the South had constitutional leverage on this question. Pro-slavery Democrats were determined to make the federal government take ownership of enforcing the Constitution's fugitive clause. If they operationalized the federal government's commitment to protecting enslavers' ownership of property when said property ran away into another state, Congress would also find it hard to deny enslavers the right to move property into federal territory. Senator James Mason offered a bill that would eliminate the trial of accused fugitives by northern local juries, a bill that potentially would allow white Southerners to accuse anyone of escaping from slavery with little proof of ownership and haul them south. Southern enslavers were coalescing around key principles, raising their demands, and increasing the pressure to find a solution to the territorial issue. Meanwhile, news from California made it clear that gold veins first struck in 1848 would dramatically enhance the U.S. financial system's ability to promote growth. But the fevered migration of more than 80,000 American 49ers to California in 1849 increased the tension of the territorial debates. The majority of the migrants were Northerners, yet Southern whites who came often brought slaves to work the mines. Mexico had abolished slavery in California some 20 years prior, but enslavers saw no reason why California had to be a free state. It even could be two states, North and South, free and slave. Yet Congress couldn't create a territorial government until it resolved its ongoing impasse. So for now, lawless uncertainty reigned in California. The Congress elected in November 1848 would not be officially seated until December 1849. But shortly after his March 1849 inauguration, President Taylor secretly encouraged some California and New Mexico settlers, mostly Northerners, to hold conventions. The state constitutions they'd write would ban slavery. When Southern Whigs, who would soon face their own very Southern constituents, found out, they rushed to condemn Taylor's betrayal. Back home, politicians and editors began to plan an all-South convention, scheduled for Nashville in July 1850. As the 31st Congress finally convened in December, many wondered if this would be the last gathering of all the state's representatives in Washington. Party alliances showed little sign of cohering again. The House took 64 ballots to name a speaker, finally changing its rules so that a Georgia Democrat won. Relieved, it turned to the business of hiring an official doorkeeper, 
an employee position similar to sergeant-at-arms. But then Northern and Southern representatives turned that, too, into a fight. Should they hire a pro-slavery or anti-slavery man? Then, in his official presidential message, Taylor boldly asked the gathered representatives and senators to admit California and New Mexico under constitutions that banned slavery. Congress collapsed into a chaos of roiling, seething rhetoric. Threats of disunion, the Southerners, proclamations of joy at the prospect of slave rebellion, a few free soil men, insistent claims that Northerners would not be bullied, Democrats and Whigs from the free states, shrieks of bad faith and cheating, and complaints of insults and dishonorable exclusion from territories won by Southern blood, the Southerners again. After two months of shouting that threatened to rend all comedy forever, a troop of wrinkled old men rode into the breach. On the night of January 21, 1850, Henry Clay had visited Daniel Webster at his lodgings in Washington to confirm that his fellow old Whig would back his play. On the 29th, the Kentuckian rose in the well of the Senate chamber, where he had spent much of the last four decades. Clay presented eight resolutions that set off advantages for one section with those granted to the other, and he offered them all together, a pill to swallow, all or nothing. Historians often say that the Compromise of 1850, which these resolutions initiated, provided the North with a crucial decade in which to become strong enough to defeat the South when war eventually came. Whether that is true or not, Clay himself came close to scuttling his own Union-protecting efforts. He insisted that the unitary nature of his proposals forced the warring sides to commit to all the bargains at once. But opponents accused him of egotistical motives, pointing out that a single large proposal identified the compromise with its author. Moreover, while a real compromise is a win-win solution, in which each side can claim victory, it is also possible for parties in conflict to view a bundle of alternating surrenders as a lose-lose solution. Such an outcome might be not the end of conflict, but the fertile source of new ones. And that is where we will pick up at for next week. I think we have two sessions left because we only have nine pages left uh, in Chapter 9. But I think we should uh, be done in two weeks moving forward to a new book. That being said, if folks would like to participate, the number again is 641 seven one five three six four zero the code is five six four nine four three pound press star six if you would like to participate was kind of wild listening to this because so much of this material is covered in uh, the American Slave Coast where they go uh, into a lot more detail. That is a bigger book. They go into a lot more detail about um, the white people in California once they found gold and whites wanted to bring their slaves out to have them mine and the white people that were already there were like, you've got to be kidding. Uh, you are not bringing those niggers out here uh, to do any mining. Uh, no way. <laughs> we're not going to have that and the gangsterism that went with, with all of that, them finding gold in California. Anywho, uh, folks want to participate, feel free. We have a uh, little less than a half hour uh, left in the broadcast. Uh, all the folks who chimed in who have a hand up, uh, your line should be open. Uh, Thomas in New York, Mr. Demery Four, Roz, retired firefighter. Uh, if you all have commentary you would like to add, feel free. Can I be heard? 
Yes, sir. Uh, yes, this session was uh, pretty packed with some interesting uh, anecdotes throughout. Um, it was interesting on page 328, there's a section that said, um, and just as Joshua now, I mean, excuse me, and just as Joshua Levitt had hoped, David Wilmot and other Northern Democrats, most of whom hated both Whigs and black people, were voting against the slave power and with anti-slavery Whigs. Such developments could destabilize the delicate balances inside U.S. politics. One immediate consequence was that opposition to slavery, expansionism, became a newly viable political identity for many Northern candidates for office. In 1847, John G. Palfrey ran for Congress in a special election to fill a seat in a district once dominated by cotton wigs. Supporters proclaimed that he had shown his face by his works, having emancipated a large number of slaves in Louisiana, Louisiana excuse me, who came to him by inheritance. And I found that interesting because um, this section and most of the, the um, chapter really is detailing the internal struggle within white supremacy itself for who's going to dominate, how uh, white supremacy is going to be practiced as far as the domination of black people. And um, I found a section where they talk about him uh, showing his faith in his, by his works, by having emancipated a large number of slaves in Louisiana. Um, I find that to be, this reminds me of the sound of like modern day liberals, which are basically more refined white supremacists. Um, he just seems to be a much more refined one who uh, they're utilizing this uh, so-called emancipation of large number of slaves as an entree into brainwashing probably non-white people into believing, or actually not probably, non-white people into believing that he's a good white person. So it's just an interesting play on words um, for this white supremacist who supposedly emancipated uh, some uh, supposedly large groups of black people. Um, there was another section brief on page 331 that um, I found very telling. It says, uh, in February 1847, Calhoun offered the Senate a set, a set piece exposition of his argument that enslavers had a fundamental right to use and move and exploit enslaved human beings. And it just shows that literally white people believe that they did not have any rights whatsoever unless those rights involved the genocide of black people and the torture and abuse of black people. And this really goes to show the core of white culture is the domination of non-white people and the propagation of racism, white supremacy, whether it's violent and overt or subtle and covert, but the result end result is always the same um, in that regard, which is the domination of non-white people. Um, also page uh, 332 had a brief section that said, um, I am, said Calhoun, a planter, a, uh, a cotton planter. I am a Southern man and a slaveholder a kind and merciful one, I trust, and none the worse for being a slaveholder, I say, for one, I would rather meet any extremity on earth than give up one inch of our equality, one inch of what belongs to us as members of this great republic. He knew others would agree. To me, this is a very um, deeply subtle, refined form of uh, rhetorical ethics because he uses terms which can kerfuffle the brain or confuse the brain by calling himself a slaveholder and yet saying he's a kind and merciful one. There's no such thing. Um, if you're a slaveholder, nothing about you is kind, especially in uh, antebellum and or even postbellum slavery of black people. So um, just this play on words is always trying to take 
the 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 sick concept of a slaveholder and humanize it and make it seem like they people and I just found that very telling. And um, there's a section towards the end of that page that says something very interesting, um, and it kind of speaks to right now, what we're dealing with right now with the presidential election um, that's coming up. About the only thing upon which Calhoun and Palfrey could agree was that all of Mexico was too much. We have never dreamed of incorporating into our union any but the Caucasian race, Calhoun proclaimed. More than half of the Mexican, Mexicans are Indians, and the other is composed chiefly of mixed tribes. Ours, sir is the government the white race. Palfi also thought Mexico's nameless and mongrel breeds would fit poorly into the United States. That sounds like a Donald Trump stump speech right there. When he talks about Mexico and he talks about building the wall and he talks about Mexicans coming to America, selling drugs and, you know, killing people and raping white women, this sounds like a Donald Trump stump speech that he could have literally just copied those words, repeated them a couple of weeks ago, and, and we would see it on the news, and he would probably get rave reviews from his white supremacist counterparts. Um, I found another section right beneath that very telling as well, because it has another set of subtle but um, really deep uh, white supremacist information. It says, proclaiming allegiance to free trade, free labor, free soil, and free men. These dissident Democrats gathered with Whig splinter groups and Liberty Party activists and created the Free Soil Party. Um, that one section, the area where he says free trade, free labor, free soil, and free men, he's basically saying free trade as in the credit system, which was built on the backs of black people, um, and, of course, the different schemes they had as far as when they couldn't pay their credit stashing black people in Mexico and running them all over the country, then to free labor would be, of course, again, the enslavement and abuse of black people. Free soil would be the soil they stole from the Native Americans to enslave the black people. And free men would be they, white people, free to do whatever they want as far as their abuse and domination and terrorism of black people. And I just found that, that little section um, very, very telling. Also, um, on 334, it says, when the smoke cleared, the terrified bourgeoisie was welcoming a second Napoleon, the first one's nephew, as the leader of a new republic that would soon become an empire. Across the Rhine, people rose up against the rulers of various German states, demanding a liberal, unified nation in some cases, and more radical outcomes in others. When the revolutions collapsed, political refugees fled the European mainland, including one named Karl Marx. He landed in London and spent the rest of his life holed up in British libraries, but many 48ers, in quotes, came to the United States. Um, I found that very interesting, the way that they related the French um, to the Germans, uh, to the British, to the United States. Because if you look up the Jutes, J-U-T-E-S, those people are one of the main groups that left Germany. And basically, the, the French, the Welsh, the Scots, the Irish, all of those groups and quite a bit of the Western European bloc are all direct descendants of German people. So essentially when you're looking at them, even though they speak English in Britain, they're actually, their ancestors are German. If you just look up those people, not just the Jews, there were a couple other groups, but the Jews was the, were the main ones. And it brought me back to one of the recordings you had with Dr. Welsing. I cannot remember because I just listened to literally all 31 of them. Um, but she talked about Germans being, and she used the term, and she took her time. She said, germ man. 
And I found that very telling because I thought about that a long time ago, that they are the spreaders of germs, just the way that they would use smallpox, smallpox blankets, measles-infected blankets to spread germs. They would sleep with animals and then actually introduce gonorrhea and syphilis to the human race by uh, trans-species infection due to them sleeping with animals. And it made me think of the fact that these are all this, basically the same people or descendants of the same people, which is why they think and function the same. And I remember Dr. Welsing basically um, discussed in one of her um, epi episodes on the program that basically white people were uh, basically an inbred race because the only way for white people to survive is to be inbred, to only breed with themselves. If they breed with anyone that's non-white, the result, of course, would not be a, a, a white person. So just that whole concept of how they related all of these people together and what Dr. Wilson conveyed in that pre previous program, I wish I could remember the exact one because she said so much, um, just really brought that home to me when she, um, that discussion that she had on the show. Um, also, there was a brief section that says on 335, a Congress dominated by the likes of John Palfrey the Younger would ban the interstate slave trade. Then there would be no injections of new capital and no stick to hold over enslaved people's heads. An expanding black population would demographically drown whites and forced emancipation would follow. After that, interfering northern whites would demand for ex-slaves the right of voting and holding public office, resulting in the prostration of the white race political servility and forced interracial marriage, a degradation greater than has ever yet fallen to the lot of a free and enlightened people. That entire section sounded like Ben Tillman. The threat of Negro domination hangs over whites' heads like the sword of Damocles. I mean, it couldn't be more eloquently stated that for them, anything that encompassed any idea of the freedom of black people meant that white people would lose their freedom, they would lose their humanity, they would lose everything that they held dear, because the only thing they hold dear is racism, white supremacy, as we have discussed numerous times on this program. Um, also, oh yeah, let me see, where is it? Oh, yes, um, on page 336. Here's a brief section that says the address drew widespread support in, in the Southern press. Editors reminded common whites that the struggle to keep slavery's borders open was their fight, too. If the slave frontier closed, the risk of a repeated a repeat of the Haitian Revolution would increase. Even without a massive rebellion, poor whites would be taxed to compensate enslavers for mandated emancipation. Afterward, the rich man could use wealth to maintain his position, but the common white man would lose that native, freeborn, and independent spirit which he now possesses. And again, it just speaks to the fact that the only way they can feel free and independent was just practicing uh, slavery and genocide against black people. Um, thank you very much, and I'll mute my line there. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Uh, other folks who dialed in who had a hand up, uh, if you all have commentary, feel free. Yes, grab your Uh Yes, sir. If you could uh, speak up a little bit, Mr. Demery Ford, that would be helpful. Okay, um, how is that now? That is an improvement. Oh, okay. Um, well, briefly, I just want to uh, just say that it looks like uh, these racists are burning the midnight oil to come up with new ways to um, keep slavery 
expanding <clears throat> because in certain port, parts of the book, um, it leads you to believe that some of these individuals are working towards the end of slavery, but then you turn around and you, you see the end result of it, like Congress um, coming back and uh, changing a ruling already that would have you know, stopped slavery expansion. <clears throat> and then the guy who introduced the bill uh, hated black people anyway. So we're right back to this whole uh, thing of economics. It's nothing to do with uh, feeling any uh, sympathy for black people. You know, <clears throat> I think one thing that, uh, you know, we should mention that uh, was earlier in the book I don't think anyone mentioned it. It was a, a incident where uh, a female was cutting a male's hair, and he noticed she noticed a scar on the back of his head, and she said that she remembered when she was a small child she had cut her brother in the back of the head with a oyster shell, and you know it led you to. Uh, come to the conclusion that, you know, she had married her brother and they had kids now. And then it just goes to show when families are broken up and stolen and, and you don't know what's going to happen in your life and you don't know what type of uh, situations that you end up with. And then you got these white men, <clears throat> you know, leaders of the so-called uh, free world at this point, you know, constantly going into countries of non-white individuals, just taking land and resources. And at the same time, you have uh, north of uh, these territories, you know, uh, British held uh, uh, properties and lands that they could have been concentrating on, and but they wasn't. They were more concerned with the genocide of Indians, the uh, continual torture and uh, mistreatment of black people, and now the displacement of uh, Mexican and Indian <clears throat> uh, native people of Mexico. So, and then at the same time, uh, conspiring uh, to do Cuba and Brazil the same way. So you have to give them credit for, you know, staying on the grind. They were definitely on the grind, um, refining white supremacy and continuing the torture and the mistreatment of all non-white individuals. And it didn't matter what your name was. They all came up, came to the same conclusion. And they spent a lot of time on treaties and uh, negotiations that they never planned to uh, honor in the first place. And you just go back to the same uh, scenario, you know, the system of white supremacy 
must end and it must be replaced by a system of justice. I'll mute my line. Thanks for taking the call. Appreciate that, Mr. Demery for I I thought of that over this past weekend. I'm so glad that you brought that up because I remember that that was from last week, the segment where it was a black female who was talking about she she thought she had ended up marrying her brother and talked about how uh, just the horrors of everything that happens when you don't have information, you don't have documentation, when you've just been terrorized uh, and you, you don't even know your own personal history, what can happen as a result of that, just the, the destruction of the system of white supremacy. But I was stunned, like, wow, I had thought that to bring that up, and then we just totally forgot to bring that up. But I'm glad you got that in. That was super important uh, segment from last week. Uh, Mr. Thomas in New York, retired firefighter. Do you all have anything from the second uh, segment that you wanted to get in? might not be in a area where they can speak. Uh, I'll get comments in really quick and then double check with them before the uh, second portion goes. The uh, It was mentioned uh, Representative Hugh White, a Whig from upstate New York, seized this opportunity to challenge Northern Democrats to prevent the appropriations bill from paying for the expansion of slavery. I cracked up laughing because this is the area if people remember over the past few weeks, they had this big controversy, uh, this small town in New York, it's called uh, Whitesboro, where the, the seal, I guess, for the town, it has a picture of a white man choking uh, a Native American. That's on their, like, seal for the town. And people were like, oh, my gosh, that's really racist. And they would talk, they would give him more information about the town. And they said, oh, okay, uh, why is the town named Whiteboro? Whitesboro, oh, it's named after Hugh White. Oh, okay. And they went through all of this, I think, after people were saying, hey, this is really racist. And, and they voted and they said they weren't going to change it. I think they eventually had another uh, vote or what have you. And they, they have said that now they are going to change it. But I cracked up laughing that this is the guy that Whitesboro is named after the town with the, the seal choking the uh, Native American male. Anywho, uh, other things that popped out uh, in this section, uh, I thought, uh, let's see, the portion where they went back to talking about Mr. Mr. Palfrey, uh, where they say the horrors with this Fugitive Slave Act and all this disproportionate power that whites in the South have, uh, that they could travel to Boston and allege that even a white Massachusetts citizen was merely a light-skinned runaway slave. Uh, and this, this, these continued... Uh, metaphors uh, that white people are slaves. This comes up all the time, goes all the way back to the American Revolution. This is the way that white people conceptualize abuse and mistreatment, that we are slaves. You're treating us like niggers. You even uh, see this all the way out to, the, uh, to today, where everybody is the new black, whether they're talking about gay people or Christians. Uh, every, everything gets compared because they know the people that the war is being waged against are black people. Uh, being a nigra just becomes the quintessential representation of mistreatment and abuse. Uh, you just see that over and over and over and over. Or even all the way up into the Civil War, whites in the South are trying to enslave us. We got to do something uh, about this. Um, the sentence uh, where it's talking about the uh, influx of uh, immigrants, these are just going to be the next generation of whites. Uh, where it says that they counted as five-fifths of a person, uh, which meant uh, increased northern power. I just, it's important that it reminded me, again, the American Slave Coast, uh, which, in my view, is a better book, a much better book than this one, even though it's significantly larger than this one, and they're pretty much covering the same 
period of time, better book. But in that book, he has a, a, a paragraph where he says explicitly, it's people often say that black people were three fifths of a person, that that is incorrect. You are zero. You don't count at all. The three fifths is, is simply uh, how much disproportionate power are we going to allocate to whites in the South when we start looking at the politics and how we're going to manage uh, the plantation, the business of white terrorism in this part of the world. But in terms of black people, even three-fifths is overstating your humanity and your value as a person. You're zero to racist woman and racist man. Uh, let's see, moving. He used the term again, forced migrants, when he's talking about uh, black people going to this newly annexed territory, Texas and New Mexico and blah, blah, blah. Uh, I think people had pointed that out before, uh, act of, of racism. Uh, it should anything other than, quote, unquote, forced migrants. I would even prefer niggers uh, to that because that's just making explicit uh, the, what we think of you, uh, not, quote, unquote, forced migrants. Uh, let's see. The... Where... He's talking about, he says, Joshua Levitt and David Wilmot and other Northern Democrats, most of whom hated both Whigs and black people, were voting against slave power and with anti-slavery Whigs. I think that is, is it's, there should be like a whole chapter just on that. Uh, I think that is, is consistently one of the most understated, minimized aspects when people talk about this whole period uh, leading up to the Civil War and this conflict amongst the white people, it gets consistently presented that uh, the white people who were on the side of the Union, including Abraham Lincoln, that these people were in support of black people, that these people were not racist and nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, even uh, one of our previous guests who was in the Netherlands, no less, uh, his uh, book, I believe it's White on Black. Uh, Jan Nedervan Peters, uh, where he said, and he even did it with the whole accent, where he was talking about white people, white soldiers who fought for the Union uh, when they rioted in New York and said that they were for the Union, not for the Negros, uh, where they just make it very plain. But I feel like that should that just that sentence alone, uh, where you got these people uh, who hate black people. Yeah, we're against uh, quote unquote the white enslavers in the South, but we hate Negros too. That should be really clearly explained uh, in terms of this is how racism operated in the north and in these territories where you don't have uh, where you have a different type of slavery or racism. That should be uh, intricately with lots and lots of detail explained and not just a quick uh, sentence, uh, because most of the time it just gets presented that Harriet Beecher Stowe, William Lloyd Garrison, Abraham Lincoln, you go right on down the line, John Brown, David Wilmot, that these are just the coolest non-racist whites in the world. Uh, and if we just had, you know, an extra hundred of them, we could get this problem solved lickety split and nothing could be further from the truth. Um, into, uh, just also to toss in the Mexican war, uh, where they're thieving all this territory. Uh, Ross, I think, pointed out great passage where they're talking about, you know, we're, we don't really want all of this territory because it's, it's too many dark people down there and we don't want to bring uh, all of them. This is supposed to be a white man's country. Um, they 
pointed out uh, in American Slave Coast that, number one, that basically this was like a tune-up for the Civil War. You heard a lot of the names mentioned, uh, Grant and Lee and a lot of these folks who became famous killers uh, in the quote-unquote Civil War, uh, that they got their practice in killing and, you know, refined their methodology of warfare uh, in this battle, uh, fighting against and taking more property uh, from non-white people. Uh, but I thought that statement was great. And you hear that repeated consistently. Uh, one of the gripes that they had, white people, when they got all this new territory uh, from Mexico, when they brought uh, their enslaved black people uh, to Texas and some of these areas, right, you know, where uh, you still had lots of Mexicans, right, I guess, on the border, uh, that the Mexicans, they were coming and being friendly with the enslaved black people and ended up marrying them and absconding with their property. Like this became like a huge uh, gripe uh, that they had where they were really upset with them. Um, moving forward. Yeah, that was great. The, the speech that uh, Mr. Calhoun uh, gives over. I thought it was also uh, great where he points out that uh, Mr. Calhoun and uh, what's it, uh, Palfrey, that they, the only points uh, where they agree, where he says that they could only agree that Mexico was too much great, again, just pointing that white people are in cohesion. They may differ about a whole lot of things. I think the way that I've presented it consistently on the program, uh, that this is, it's, it's not about like, even amongst white people. A lot of times when people talk about black people don't like other black people, white people don't like other white people. You see that in this book and in this conflict, even all the way up through today. However, they can coalesce and unite around a concept the concept of we're supposed to terrorize and dominate these non-white people, particularly black people. And you see that even where you have white people who are staunch opponents, we at least agree on this concept of, yeah, whether it's too many Negros uh, over here or how we want to manage them or too many dark people in Mexico, we agree on that and we can move forward and get a lot accomplished on this planet just on that basis alone. Uh, let's see. Yeah, you hear that repeated over and over and over uh, this line of thought. You hear really you hear this not just in the context of the Civil War. You hear this repeated all the way up through even with the president, uh, President Obama being in the White House, that uh, if we do not keep sufficient uh, domination of the Negros, they will run wild. They will be doing to us what we've done to them, raping white women. The whole gambit, uh, they'll do, I mean, you just hear that same mythology. Ben Tillman was referenced. You hear that uh, to this very day uh, in terms of white people and saying this is why we have got to make sure we don't let the business get out of hand. We've got to remain vigilant and got to make sure that everybody is dedicated uh, to the enterprise of white terrorism. Uh, this is a recurring uh, rejoinder of rhetoric uh, under their system. Uh, I will... Stop there. Uh, Thomas in New York, retired firefighter. Do you all have anything quick you wanted to get in before we wrap up? Yeah, well, just uh, more of the same of what I said before uh, on the layers of white people uh, that uh, white people who were managing our terror in the most proficient manner of manufacturing wealth. Uh, they would bring uh, other whites from the western part of Europe, then the eastern part of Europe, then the southern part of Europe, uh, in to fill the, fill the void 
uh, uh, to become more and more proficient, to go from expansion uh, to uh, the refinement period that we are in today. It all matches up. Uh, I do not accept any any uh, any uh, 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 deception on what I don't I didn't know. Uh, I didn't have any slaves uh, and the rest of the foolishness rhetoric that you hear from uh, white people who are contemporary here on a daily basis. They all knew. Uh, they came to gain an advantage, and uh, that's it. You know, I mean, I don't want to hear nothing else at all as far as I'm concerned. Uh, and, and books like this, uh, are, I just, just serve as a uh, confirmation to that, uh, that logic. Right on, right on. I will assume Thomas in New York. We will catch him next week if he's not in a position to speak right now. Hey, I, I just want to add on to um, what the firefighters just said. Um, that um, you know, definitely. And um, just um, we had a guest one before. You had a guest one before, Gus. Who um, a lot of these people who are white, Irish and the Polish, and they weren't white in the 1940s. You know, they they weren't fully accepted. They were more accepted than us, but white people still didn't fully accept them as the Italians, the Greeks, and being white at all. So, um, you know, that's all I want to add. Um, I don't have anything. Um, I think everyone touched on the things I wanted to add as far as the book goes. And um, good evening, and I'll speak to you tomorrow. Right on. Stay warm. Stay safe. Uh, we will be here tomorrow. The uh, compensatory call-in. 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. We will catch up on uh, what has gone down. It has been uh, a full week. Uh, Kyra Gurley trial and everything that uh, the fallout from the Super Bowl that continues. Uh, we'll be uh, talking about all that tomorrow. Uh, feel free to chime in. Workplace racism as well. Uh, if you have any confusion, can't find something in the archives, problems, gripes, drop an email until justice at gmail.com until justice at gmail.com uh, thanks for folks tuning in again we have two sessions left and we will be all done moving on to our next book uh, that said we are fundraising for 2016 invest if you think the program is constructive racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com listener supported counter racist radio uh, you'll see the paypal button when you go to the blog it is in the top right corner the paypal button if you're not on paypal drop me an email and we will get you a physical mailing address uh, huge thanks to all the folks who have invested down through the years uh, kept us rolling for seven years it'll be uh, in roughly 10 days our seven year anniversary hope we have uh, provided constructive info and help folks get a better grasp of what white supremacy is what it means to be white what we can do to counter this system uh, with that said as I say consistently this book has even given more uh, information as to why we should codify this part of our behavior sobriety would be best under conditions of racism white supremacy uh, I 
discourage being in the presence of intoxicated whites. I don't even think it's a good idea to be around a whole lot of intoxicated non-white people. Uh, we do not need to be in any environments where people are not making good decisions. We already have enough problems as victims of racism. We don't need any unnecessary strife in our lives. Uh, if you're going to be behind the wheel, uh, even a passenger or pedestrian, you do not want to be under the influence. Uh, there are race soldiers constantly on the lookout to make problems, arrests, the whole nine, even taking your very life. If you are a non-white person, especially if you're a black person, uh, you really want to be able to make the best decisions to keep yourself safe and anybody that you might be responsible for. Uh, that's it. Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cows signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, Your brother. Problem. You're a victim. I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs>